Part six, chapter twenty five of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Vronsky and Anna passed the rest of the summer and part of the autumn in the country under the same conditions, and took no steps toward getting a divorce. It was agreed between them that they should not make any visits, but they both felt that the longer they lived alone, particularly in the autumn, and without guests, the more unendurable became their life, and that they must have some change. Nothing which constitutes happiness was apparently wanting to them. They were rich, young, well, they had one child, and they had pleasant occupations. Though they had no guests, Anna continued to take the greatest care of her person and her dress. She read much, both in the way of novels and of serious literature, and sent abroad for valuable books, which she saw praised in the foreign magazines and journals, and she read them carefully, as one can do only when in the solitude of the country. Moreover, all subjects which interested Vronsky she studied up in books and scientific journals, so that often he went directly to her with questions relating to agronomics and to architecture, even with those on the breeding of horses, and the best methods of hunting. He was amused at her knowledge and her memory, and when he felt any doubt about the beginning of an enterprise, and wanted moral support, he would consult her, and she would find in books whatever he asked about, and then show it to him. The arrangement of the hospital also occupied her. She not only assisted in it, but, moreover, invented many original ideas and carried them out. But, after all, her chief preoccupation was herself. Herself, and how she might retain Vronsky's affections— how she might supply for him all that he needed. Vronsky appreciated this, and saw that the only aim of her life was to please him and to obey his wishes in every particular, but at the same time he was oppressed by the chains of tenderness which she tried to forge around him. As time went on, he found himself more and more embarrassed by these chains, and more desirous of, if not exactly escaping them, of at least keeping them from interfering with his independence. If it had not been for his ever-increasing desire for freedom, if it had not been for the fact that every time he had to go to the city, to the races, there was a scene with Anna, Vronsky would have been perfectly contented with his existence. The role of rich landed proprietor, which he had chosen for himself as constituting the true work of the Russian aristocracy, and which he had been engaged in now for half a year, gave him ever-increasing pleasure. His work— which absorbed him more and more, was prospering admirably. Notwithstanding his enormous expenses for the building of the hospital, for machinery, and cattle imported from Switzerland, and many other things, he felt sure that he was not wasting, but increasing, his property. As far as it concerned the matter of income, the sale of wood, of wheat, of wool, the leasing of land, Vronsky was as firm as a rock, and succeeded in holding to his price. In matters concerning his whole management, both on this and on his other estates, he kept to the simplest and least risky processes, and was to the highest degree economical and prudent in all details. Notwithstanding all the cleverness and shrewdness of his German superintendent, who tried to involve him in purchases, and who so managed every calculation that a large outlay was needed at first, but where, by waiting a little time, the same thing could be done much cheaper and with greater profit, Vronsky used his own judgment. He would listen to his superintendent, would ask him all sorts of questions, 
and consent to his proposed plans only when the thing to be imported or constructed was something perfectly new, unheard of as yet in Russia, and calculated to cause surprise. Moreover, he would decide to embark in large enterprises only when he had plenty of money on hand, and in entering on any such outlay he attended to all the details, and insisted that he should have the very best results. Thus it was evident that in carrying out his undertakings he was not dissipating, but was increasing his estate. In the month of October, the government of Kashin, in which were situated the estates of Bronsky, Sviatsky, Koznoyshev, and a part of Levens, was to hold its nobilaria elections. These elections, for many reasons, and because of the persons who took part in them, attracted general attention. Much was said about them, and great preparations were made for them. People from Moscow, Petersburg, and even from abroad, who had never witnessed an election, came to look on. Vronsky had some time before promised Sviatsky to go with him. Just before the elections, Sviatsky, who had often visited Vazvazenskoya, came after Vronsky. On the evening before this event, Vronsky and Anna almost had a quarrel about his proposed trip. It was getting autumnal in the country, a melancholy, gloomy time, and therefore Vronsky, already ready for a contest, announced with a cold, stern expression, such as he rarely allowed himself toward Anna, that he was going away on this expedition. But to his surprise, Anna received the news with entire calmness, and only asked him when he should be back. He looked at her scrutinizingly, not understanding her calmness. She smiled as he looked at her. He knew her power of retiring into herself, and he knew that it was manifested only when she was planning something about herself and did not wish him to know her plans. He was afraid of this now, but he was so desirous of avoiding a scene that he almost forced himself into believing that her manner was sincere. "'I hope you will not be lonely.' "'I hope so, too,' said Anna. "'I received a box of books from Gautier yesterday. "'No, I shall not be lonely.' "'She is adopting a new tone, and so much the better,' thought he. "'But it is all the same thing.' And so, without entering into any frank explanation with her, he started off for the elections. This was the first time since the beginning of their liaison that he had left her without full and complete explanation. In one way this disquieted him. In another he felt that it was better so. "'At first there will be something as there is now.' not altogether clear and above board, but after a while she will get used to it. At all events, he thought, I can give up to her everything except my independence as a man. End of chapter 25When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Part six, chapter twenty six of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. In September, Levin returned to Moscow for Kitty's confinement. He had already been there a whole month without anything to do, 
when Sergey Ivanovitch, who had an estate in the government of Kashin, and who took great interest in the approaching elections, was getting ready to make the journey. He took with him his brother, who had a parcel of land in the Selesnevsky district, and who, moreover, had some very important business to transact in regard to a trusteeship, and the receipt of certain money in Kashin in behalf of his sister, who lived abroad. Levin was even at the last moment in a state of uncertainty, but Kitty, seeing that he was bored in Moscow, not only urged him to go, but without his knowledge bought him a noble's uniform at the expense of eighty roubles. And these eighty roubles paid out for the uniform constituted the chief reason which induced Levin to go. He therefore went to Kashin. He had been at Kashin six days, present at every session of the electors, and employing himself in his sister's affairs, which did not progress at all satisfactorily. All the marshals of nobility were absorbed in the elections, and it was impossible to accomplish the very simple business which depended on his guardianship. The other matter, the receipt of some money, in the same way caused him great delay. After long parleyings concerning the removal of an interdict, the money was ready to be paid over, but the notary, a most obliging man, could not deliver the paper, because the signature of the president was necessary, and the president, neglecting his duties, was at the sessions of the nobles. All these annoyances, this wandering from place to place, these talks with very pleasant good men, who thoroughly appreciated the disagreeable position of the petitioner, but could not help him, all this endeavor which brought no result, produced on Levin's mind a most painful impression, analogous to that tormenting impotence which one sometimes experiences in a nightmare when one wants to employ physical force and is unable to do so. He frequently experienced this when talking with the most obliging of men, the solicitor. This solicitor, it seemed, was doing everything in his power, and was exerting all his mental energies to get Levin out of his difficulties. "'Try this way, or that way,' he would say, "'or go to this place, or to that place,' and the solicitor would lay out a whole plan for avoiding the fatal obstacle that stood in the way. But immediately he would add, "'Still there is delay,' however, try it. And Levin would go flying off in this direction or that, and doing whatever he was told to do. All were good and kind, but it seemed as if the obstacles, even after he had passed them, kept growing up again and cutting off his path. Especially annoying was it to him that he could never know with whom he was really contending, for whose profit it was that he could never bring his business to a conclusion. And no one seemed to know this, either, not even the solicitor knew this. If Levin could have understood, as he understood why it was impossible to get at the office of a railway otherwise than by standing in line, it would not have been humiliating and vexatious. But, as regarded the obstacles that stood in his way, no one could tell him why they existed. But Levin had greatly changed since his marriage. He had learned patience, and if he could not comprehend why all this was arranged as it was, then he told himself, since he did not know all about it, he was not in a position to judge, and that apparently it was unavoidable, and he strove not to lose his temper. Now that he was present at the elections, he endeavored not to be severe in his criticisms, nor to enter into controversies, but as far as he could to understand the matters which excellent and honorable men, whom he thoroughly respected, found so serious and so absorbing. 
Since his marriage, Levin had opened his eyes to so many new and serious sides of life, which had hitherto seemed to him, in his superficial view of them, of no great importance, that now, in the matter of the elections, he looked for a serious significance, and found one. Sergey Ivanovitch explained to him the idea and significance of the change which was proposed to the electors. The governmental predvoditel, or marshal of nobility, had charge of very many matters of public importance, as, for example, guardianships, such as the one which Levin himself was now trying to bring into a satisfactory shape, and large sums of money, and the direction of the gymnasia, or schools for women, and for the peasantry, and the military, and the training of the people for their new duties, and finally of the zemstvo, or popular assembly. Now the present marshal, Snetkov, was a man of the old aristocratic stamp, who had squandered an enormous property, was a very worthy and honourable man in his way, but wholly incapable of comprehending the new needs of the present time. He always, on every occasion, took the side of the nobles. He always cast the whole weight of his influence against the extension of popular education, and he gave the zemstvo, which was coming to have such an enormous significance, a partisan character. It was considered necessary to put in his place a new and active man, imbued with the most enlightened modern ideas, and to manage the business so as to extract from all the rights given to the noblesse, not as the noblesse, but simply as a constituent part of the zemstvo, such advantages of self-government as were possible. In the rich government of Kushin, which always took the lead in every advance, such forces were now concentrated that the business now before the assembled nobles would be likely to set an example for all the other departments, indeed for all Russia, and therefore the business had a great importance. It was proposed to elect as marshal, instead of Snetskov, either Sviatsky, or, still better, Nedyadovsky, a man of eminent understanding, formerly a professor, who was an intimate friend of Sergey Ivanovitch's. The Sombrani, or Provincial Assembly, was opened by a speech from the governor, who urged the nobility to elect the necessary functionaries, not from partisan reasons, but for merit and for the public weal, and he hoped that the nobility of the Department of Kashin would do their duty, as they had always done, and thus deserve their monarch's confidence. Having finished his speech, the governor left the hall, and the noblemen, tumultuously and eagerly, and some of them even enthusiastically, followed him, and surrounded him while he was putting on his shuba, and talking in a friendly way with the government marshal. Levin, anxious to see everybody and miss nothing, was in the midst of the throng, and he heard the governor say, "'Please tell Maria Ivanovna that my wife is very sorry, but she had to go to the asylum.' Then all the nobles gaily took their shubas, and went in a body to the cathedral. In the cathedral, Levin, together with the rest, raised his hand and repeated after the protopope the solemn oaths by which they swore to fulfill their duties. The church service always impressed Levin, and when he joined with this throng of men, old and young, in repeating the words, I kiss the cross, he felt stirred. On the second and third day, the assembly was occupied with the monies meant for the education establishments, for the nobility and for women, which Sergey Ivanovitch declared had no especial importance, and Levin, who had his own business to attend to, was not present. 
on the fourth day the verifying of the government accounts came up and here for the first time the new party came into direct collision with the old the commission whose duty it was to verify these accounts announced to the assembly that the money was all accounted for the government marshal arose and with tears in his eyes thanked the nobility for their confidence in him the nobles loudly congratulated him and shook hands with him but at this time one noble belonging to sergey ivanovitch's party declared that he had heard that the commission for fear of affronting the government marshal had not properly performed the verification of the accounts one of the members of the commission unguardedly admitted this then a very small and very young-looking but very sarcastic gentleman began to say that it would probably be agreeable for the government marshal to give an account of his expenditures and that the excessive delicacy of the members of the commission had deprived him of that moral satisfaction thereupon the members of the commission withdrew their report and sergey ivanovitch began logically to prove that it was necessary to acknowledge that the expenditures had been verified or that they had not been verified and he went into a long exposition of the dilemma a chatterer from the opposite party replied to sergey ivanovitch then sviatsky spoke and was followed by the sarcastic gentleman the proceedings were tedious and no end was reached levin was surprised that they discussed this so long and all the more because when he asked sergey ivanovitch whether snetskov was suspected of peculiation he replied oh he's an honest man but we must shake this old-fashioned patriarchal way of managing business on the fifth day occurred the election of the district marshals the session was a stormy one for many of the districts in the uzet or district of selenevskoya sviatsky was unanimously elected by acclamation and he gave a grand dinner the same evening End of chapter 26part six chapter twenty seven of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle the slippervox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel the principal election that of marshal of the government did not take place until the sixth day the great halls and the little halls were crowded with nobles in their various uniforms many came for this day only acquaintances who had not met for years were there some from the Crimea, some from Petersburg, some from abroad. The debates were carried on at the governor's table, under the emperor's portrait. The nobles, both in the larger and the smaller hall, were grouped in opposing camps, and, judging by the hostile and mistrustful looks exchanged, by the conversations which ceased at the approach of strangers, by the fact that some walked up and down in the distant corridor whispering together, it was evident that each side had secrets from the other. Even by a superficial glance it could be seen that the nobles were divided into two sharply contrasting types, the old and the new. The old school wore, for the most part, either old court uniforms, tightly buttoned up, with swords and ancient hats, or else their ordinary marine, cavalry, or infantry uniforms of very ancient date. The uniforms of the old nobles were made in the ancient style, with epaulets on the shoulders, and with short waists and tight armholes, as if their possessors had grown out of them. But the younger men wore court uniforms with broad shoulders, long waists, and white waistcoats unbuttoned, or else uniforms with black collars and embroidered laurel leaves, 
the distinguishing badge of the Ministry of Justice. Court uniforms were to be seen here and there, also among the young men, adding to the brilliancy of the throng. But the division into old and young did not coincide with the party lines. Some of the younger men, to Levin's surprise, belonged to the old party, and on the contrary, some of the oldest nobles were on confidential terms with Sviatsky and were evidently warm partisans of the new school. In the smaller hall, where men were smoking and lunching, Levin was standing near a group of his friends and listening to what was said, and vainly exerting all his intellectual powers to comprehend what was said. Sergey Ivanovitch was the centre around whom many men had gathered. He was now listening to Sviatsky and Kaluistov, the marshal of another district, who belonged to their party. Kaluistov would not agree to go with his district, and begged Snetkov to stand as candidate. But Sviatsky advised him to do this, and Sergey Ivanovitch approved of this plan. Levin could not understand why a party opposed to this marshal, and wanting to defeat him, should nevertheless put him up as a candidate. Stefan Arkadyevitch, who had just been lunching and drinking, joined them in his chamberlain's uniform, wiping his mouth with a perfumed and embroidered cambric handkerchief. "'We hold the situation,' said he, arranging both his side-whiskers. "'Sergey Ivanovitch,' and after he heard Sviatsky's plan, he agreed with him. "'One district is enough, but let Sviatsky pretend to be in opposition,' and all except Levin understood the meaning of his words. "'Well, how is Kostya?' he said, turning to Levin and taking him by the arm. "'So you came, it seems, in style.' Levin would not have been sorry to be in style, but he could not comprehend what was taking place, and, going a few steps from the rest, he expressed to him his astonishment at seeing the hostile districts asking the old marshal to stand as candidate. "'Oh, sancta simplicatus,' replied Oblonsky, and in a few clear words he explained to Levin what the state of the case was. If, as at the last elections, all the districts should unite on the government marshal, he would be elected. This is not what is wanted. Now eight of the districts have agreed to ask him to stand, but if two should refuse to accept him for their candidate, then Snetkov might decline to stand, and then the old party might take for their candidate someone else in their party, so that the whole scheme would be defeated. But if Sviatsky's district is the only one refusing to adopt him as their candidate, Snetkov will accept the nomination. So he is selected and proposed as a candidate, so as to throw dust in the eyes of the opposite party, and when we set up our candidate, they will go over to him." Levin began to get some idea of the plan, but it was not entirely clear to him, and he was about to ask a few more questions, when suddenly there was heard from the next room a great shouting and uproar and confusion. "'What is it? What? Who? Confidence in whom? What? It is disproved. Lack of confidence. They won't admit Flerov. Prosecution. They refuse to admit a man? Shame! The law!' Such were the words that Levin heard shouted from all sides, and he, together with all the rest, hurrying from all directions and shouting at the top of their voices, rushed into the great hall, and, pressing along with all the nobles, he made his way up to the governor's table, about which the government marshal, Sviatsky, and other leaders were hotly discussing. End of chapter 27
Part six, chapter twenty eight of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Levin stood at quite a distance. A noble breathing stertorously near him, and another with thick, squeaking soles, prevented him from hearing distinctly. All he could distinguish was the marshal's gentle voice, then the sharp voice of the sarcastic gentleman and then the voice of Sviatsky. He could only distinguish that they were disputing about the meaning of a clause of the law and the meaning of the words, Nachodiv shayosa pad stysviem. The crowd parted to let Sergey Ivanovitch get to the table. Sergey Ivanovitch, after waiting till the sarcastic gentleman was done speaking, said that it seemed to him it would be a better way to consult the law itself and he asked the secretary to find for him the text of the law. The law said that in case of divergence of opinion a vote must be taken. Sergey Ivanovitch read the clause, and was just beginning to explain its meaning when he was interrupted by a tall, stout, round-shouldered proprietor, with dyed whiskers, and wearing a tight uniform with a high collar which seemed to prop up the back of his head. This man came up to the table and, striking it with his fist, shouted at the top of his voice put it to the ballot vote on it no discussing the ballot then suddenly a number of voices broke out at once and the tall noble still pounding with his fist grew angrier and angrier and shouted louder and louder but it was impossible to make out what he was talking about he said the same thing as sergey ivanovitch had proposed but evidently he hated kosnuishev and his whole party, and this feeling of hatred communicated itself to the whole party, and called forth the opposition of similar, though more decorous, hatred from the other side. Voices were raised, and for a moment everything was in confusion, so that the government marshal was obliged to call for order. "'Put it to a vote! Put it to vote! Put it to vote! The man knows what he is talking about. There'll be bloodshed. The emperor's confidence—' don't count the marshal he's not our prokashchik that's not the point please put it to vote it's odious were the exclamations heard on every side in angry violent tones eyes and faces became still angrier and more violent with words of irreconcilable hatred levin did not understand at all what the trouble was and was amazed at the passion with which they discussed the question whether they should vote or not vote on the opinion concerning Flerov. He forgot, as Sergey Ivanovitch afterward explained to him, the syllogism that for the common weal it was necessary to elect a new government marshal. To defeat the present marshal a majority of the votes was needed. To get a majority of the votes it was necessary to give Flerov the right of voting. To pronounce Flerov qualified it was necessary to have it decided how the clause of the law was to be understood. One vote may decide the whole matter, and we must be serious and logical if we wish to act for the public good, said Sergey Ivanovitch, in conclusion. But Levin forgot this, and it was trying for him to see these excellent men, for whom he had such respect, in such a disagreeable and angry frame of mind. In order to avoid this feeling, he, without waiting for the end of the election, went into the smaller hall, where there was no one except the servants connected with the buffet. Seeing the servants busily engaged in polishing the service and putting away the plates and glasses, seeing their contented, lively faces, Levin felt an unexpected feeling of relief. 
just as if he had come out from an ill-smelling room into pure air. He began to walk back and forth, watching the servants. It pleased him greatly to watch one of the servants, an old man with grey side-whiskers, expressing his scorn for the younger ones, who stood in awe of him, teaching them the best way of folding napkins. Levin was just about to engage the old servant in conversation, when the secretary of the assembly, a little old man, who made a speciality of knowing all the nobles of the province by their full names, came to call him. "'Excuse me, Konstantin Dmitrich, he said. "'Your brother is asking for you. The opinion is to be voted on.' Levin went into the hall, took a little white ball, and, following close behind Sergey Ivanovitch, he went to the table where Sviatsky was standing, with an important and ironical air, running his beard through his hand, and occasionally putting it to his nose. Sergey Ivanovitch put his ball into the ballot-box, and made room for Levin. But Levin, having entirely forgotten what the voting was for, was disconcerted, and asked his brother, "'Where shall I put it?' He spoke in a low tone, and there was talking near him. He hoped that his question would not be overheard, but the speakers stopped, and his unfortunate question was heard. Sergey Ivanovitch frowned, and replied sternly, "'That is a matter entirely of conviction.' A number of the bystanders smiled. Much embarrassed, Levin quickly cast his vote, and as he happened to hold it in his right hand, he threw it into the right-hand receptacle. Only after he had deposited it did he remember that he ought to have put it in his left hand, and he did so. But it was already too late, and growing still more confused, he hastily made his way to the very rear rank. One hundred and twenty-six in the affirmative, ninety-eight in the negative, announced the secretary, who could not pronounce the letter R. Then a laugh went round. A button and two nuts were found in the ballot-box. The questionable noble was admitted, and the new party was victorious. But the old party did not even yet acknowledge itself defeated. Levin heard them request Snetkov to stand as their candidate, and he saw a throng of nobles surrounding the government marshal, who was making an address. Levin went nearer. In reply to the nobles, Snetkov was speaking of the confidence which the nobility had reposed in him, of their love for him, which he did not deserve, because all his service had consisted in his devotion to the nobility, whom he had served for twenty years. Several times he repeated the words, I have served to the best of my ability. I appreciate your confidence, and I thank you for it. And then, suddenly pausing because of the tears which choked him, he hurried from the room. His tears arose either from the injustice that had been done him, or from his love for the nobles, or, possibly, from the unpleasant position in which he was placed, finding himself surrounded by enemies. But his grief was contagious, the majority of the nobles were touched, and Levin felt sorry for him. At the door the government marshal stumbled against Levin. "'Excuse me, I beg your pardon,' he said, as to a stranger, then, recognizing him, he smiled a melancholy smile. It seemed to Levin that he wanted to say something, but was prevented by his emotion. The expression of his face and his whole figure in his uniform, with his crosses and white pantaloons ornamented with galloon, as he hastened out, reminded Levin of some hunted animal which sees that it has little chance to escape. This expression in the government marshal's face went to Levin's heart, for only the day before he had been to see him about the guardianship affair and had seen in the whole establishment the dignity of a good-hearted domestic gentleman, the large house with ancestral furniture, unstylish, dirty, but dignified, 
old servants who had evidently been former serfs and had not changed their master, the wife, a tall, benevolent lady in her lace cap and Turkish shawl, caressing her lovely granddaughter, the youngest son, a boy in the sixth class of the gymnasium, who had come in to wish his father good morning and kiss his big hand, the imposing but affectionate greetings and gestures of the master of the house. All this had awakened in Levin involuntary respect and sympathy even then, and now he felt touched and sorry for the old man, and wanted to say something pleasant to him. "'Perhaps you will be our marshal again.' "'I doubt it,' said Snetkov, with a scared look. "'I am tired, getting old. There are younger and better men than I. Must let them take my place.' And he disappeared by a side door. Now the most solemn moment had arrived. It was necessary to proceed immediately to the election itself. The leaders of both parties were counting on their fingers the white and black balls. The controversy regarding Flerov gave the new party not only one more vote, but also gained time, so that they could send for three nobles, whom the trickery of the old party was going to deprive of the possibility of taking part in the election. Two nobles who had a weakness for wine had been made drunk by Snetkov's henchmen, and a third had been seduced by the promise of a uniform. Having learned about this, the new party made haste during the contest concerning Flerov to send an Izhvashchik for the noble and to provide him with a uniform, and to bring one of the two drunken nobles to the hall. "'I brought one of them. I had to douse him with water,' said the proprietor, who had gone in search of him, addressing Sviatsky. "'He'll do. He's not very drunk, is he? Can't he stand?' asked Sviatsky, shaking his head. "'Yes, he's a young man.' Only don't let them get him to drinking here. I told the caterer not to give him any wine under any consideration. End of chapter 28 Part 6, Chapter 29 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel The Narrow Hall where men smoked and had luncheon was crowded with nobles. The excitement kept increasing, and all faces showed signs of anxiety. Especially agitated were the leaders, who knew all the details and had followed the voting very closely. These men had charge of the approaching engagement. The others, like the soldiers in the ranks before the battle, although ready for the conflict, in the meantime sought diversion. Some ate luncheon, standing or sitting at the buffet, Others walked up and down the long room smoking cigarettes, and talking with friends whom they had not seen for long. Levin did not feel hungry, he did not smoke, and he did not care to join his friends, that is, Sergey Ivanovitch, Stepan Arkadyevitch, Sviatsky, and the others, for the reason that Vronsky, in his Aquarius uniform, stood in lively conversation with them. The evening before he had seen Vronsky at the election, and had carefully avoided him, not wishing to come into contact with him. He went to a window and sat down, watching the groups and listening to what was said around him. He felt depressed, especially because all the others, as he could see, were animated, active, and occupied, and he alone was inert and indifferent. The only other exception was an old man in a naval uniform, who had no teeth and who spoke in a mumbling voice. "'What a rogue! I told him it was not so. He can't make it up in three years.' a round-shouldered, short proprietor was saying energetically. This man, whose long, unpalmoded hair was spread out over the embroidered collar of his uniform coat, 
walked along, noisily putting down the heels of his new boots, which evidently had been made for the elections. But as he caught sight of Levin he cast a hostile glance at him, and turned about abruptly. "'Yes, it is a nasty thing to say so,' repeated the little proprietor, in a piping voice. Immediately behind these two came a whole throng of proprietors, crowding around a tall general, and quickly approaching where Levin was. They were evidently trying to find some place where they would not be overheard. "'How does he dare say that I ordered his trousers to be stolen? He drank them up, I reckon. I don't care a straw if he is a prince. Don't let him dare to say such a thing. It's swinish.' "'Hold on. Excuse me. They insist on the letter of the law,' they were saying in another group. "'His wife must be inscribed among the nobility.' "'The devil take the letter of the law. I insist on its spirit. According to that they are genuine nobles, believe me.' "'Your Excellency, let us come. Find champagne.' Another group immediately pressed behind a noble who was shouting something at the top of his voice. This was one of the three drunken nobles. I always advised Marya Semyonovna to let it on lease, because she gets no profit out of it, a proprietor was saying in a pleasant voice. The man had grey whiskers and wore the uniform of a colonel in the old general's staff. It was the same proprietor whom he had once met at Sviatsky's house. Levin immediately recognized him. The proprietor also glanced at Levin, and they greeted each other. "'This is very pleasant. How are you? I remember you very well. We met last year at Nikolai Ivanovitch's, at the Marshal's.' "'Well, how goes your farming?' asked Levin. "'Everything is going to rack and ruin,' said the proprietor, halting near Levin, and looking at him with a submissive smile, but with an expression of calmness and confidence that this was the natural order of things. "'But how does it happen that you are in our part of the world?' he asked. "'Did you come to take part in our coup d'etat?' he went on, pronouncing the French words with confidence, but with a bad accent. "'All Russia is assembled here. The chamberlains, if not ministers—' He pointed to Stepan Arkadyevitch's imposing figure, as in white trousers and chamberlain's uniform he strode along next to the general. "'I must confess to you,' said Levin, "'I don't understand the significance of these noblemen's elections.' The old gentleman looked at him. "'Well, what is there to understand?' What significance can they have? It's a decaying institution which prolongs itself by the force of inertia. Look at all these uniforms. They tell you this is an assemblage of justices of the peace, perpetual counsellors, and so on, but no noblemen. Why, then, do you come? From habit, to keep up relations, from a sort of moral obligation. And then, if I must tell the truth, I come on a question of personal interest— my son-in-law wants to be elected as a perpetual counsellor. He's not rich. I must try to help him. But why do such people as that come? And he pointed out the orator whose sharp voice had struck Levin during the debates at the governor's table. It is a new generation of nobles. Certainly new, but not nobles. They are landholders, but we are the proprietors. But they are trying to get the power as if they were nobles. Yes. But you say it is a decaying institution? Decaying, or not decaying, it must be treated more respectfully. Even though Snetkov, we may not be worth much, but nevertheless we have lasted a thousand years. Suppose you lay out a new garden before your house, and there happens to be a century-old tree which has grown up on your land. Though the tree is old and gnarled, you don't have it cut down, 
but you lay out your walks and your flower-beds in such a way as to preserve intact the old oak. "'You can't grow such a tree in one year,' he said, cautiously, and immediately changed the conversation. "'Well, how do matters go with you?' "'Not very brilliantly. Five per cent.' "'Yes, but you don't reckon your own time and labor. Now, I will tell you about myself. Up to the time when I began to take care of my own estate, and when I was still in the service, I used to receive three thousand a year. Now I work harder than when I was in the service, and I also get about five per cent, and I am lucky if I get that, and all my time and trouble are thrown in. But why do you do it if the results are so unprofitable? Yes, why do I? What shall I say? Habit. And because I know it has to get done. I will tell you something besides, continued the proprietor, leaning his elbow on the window-seat and falling into a tone of monologue. My son has no taste for farming. He is evidently going to be a scholar, so there'll be no one to carry on after me. And yet one goes ahead. Here, I have just planted a garden. Yes, yes, said Levin, you are quite right. I am always conscious that there is no real economy in my farming, but still I go on with it. But one feels that one owes a certain duty to the land. Now I will tell you another thing, continued the proprietor. A neighbor— a merchant came to see me. We went over the farm, and then the garden. "'Well, Stefan Vasilievich, this place is in order,' said he, "'but your garden has too much shade.' But he found it in order, mind you. My advice would be to cut down those lindens, just for the bark. Here are a thousand lindens. Each one will make two excellent baths, and baths sell well. If I were you, I should cut some of that linden trash down and sell it.' "'Yes,' and with the money he would buy cattle, or perhaps a bit of ground cheap, and he would lease it to the peasants, said Levin, with a smile, for evidently he had more than once come into contact with similar cases. And so he makes a fortune. But you and I thank God if we keep our land, and are able to leave it to our children. You are married, I have heard? Yes, replied Levin, with proud satisfaction. It is wonderful. We live without making any profit, obliged, like ancient vestals, to watch some holy fire. The old gentleman smiled under his white moustache. Some people, like our friends Sviatsky and Count Vronsky, pretend to make something by agriculture, but so far they have only succeeded in eating into their capital. "'Why shouldn't we imitate the merchants, and cut down the trees in our parks, and make money?' asked Levin, reverting to the idea which had struck him. "'Just this,' because we guard the sacred fire, as you say. Besides, that is not the business of the nobles, and our work as nobles does not lie here, at these elections, but at home, each in his own place. It is not a caste instinct that tells us what is necessary or not necessary. The muzics have theirs. A good muzik will persist in hiring as much land as he can, no matter how bad it is, he will work it just the same, even without profit." "'We are all alike,' said Levin. "'I am very glad to have met you,' he added, seeing Sviatsky approaching. "'Here we have met for the first time since we were together at your house,' said the proprietor to Sviatsky. "'Yes, and we have been having a talk.' "'And doubtless have been slandering the new order of things,' said Sviatsky, smiling. "'Something of the sort. One must free one's mind.' End of chapter 29
Part six, chapter thirty of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Sviatsky took Levin's arm, and together they approached their friends. It was now impossible to avoid Vronsky. He was standing with Stepan Arkadyevitch and Sergey Ivanovitch, and was looking straight at Levin as he came along. I am delighted, said he offering his hand to Levin. I think we met at the Princess Sherbatsky's. Yes, I remember our meeting perfectly, answered Levin, growing purple, and he immediately turned away and entered into conversation with his brother. Vronsky, smiling slightly, began conversing with Sviatsky, apparently having no desire to continue his talk with Levin. But Levin, while he was speaking with his brother, kept looking at Vronsky, trying to think of something that he might say to him so as to atone for his rudeness. "'On whom does the business depend now?' he asked, turning to Sviatsky and Vronsky. "'On Stetkov. He must either decline or consent,' replied Sviatsky. "'What will he do? Consent or not?' "'That is where the trouble lies. Neither one thing nor the other,' said Vronsky. "'But who will be nominated if he declines?' asked Levin, looking at Vronsky. "'Any one may,' answered Sviatsky. "'You, perhaps?' suggested Levin. "'Certainly not,' replied Sviatsky, scowling, and directing an agitated look at the sarcastic gentleman who was standing near Sergey Ivanovitch. "'Who, then?' "'Nedyadovsky,' continued Levin, feeling that he was treading on dangerous ground. But this was still worse. Nedyadovsky and Sviatsky were two of the candidates.' "'Not I, in any case,' replied the sarcastic gentleman. It was Nevyadovsky himself. Sviatsky introduced him to Levin. "'This takes hold of you, doesn't it?' asked Stefan Arkadyevitch, winking at Vronsky. "'It's just like a race. One might put up stakes.' "'Yes, indeed, it takes hold,' said Vronsky. "'And having once begun with it, one must carry it through. "'It's a battle,' said he, contracting his brows and compressing his powerful jaws." What a worker Sviatsky is! He sees everything so clearly, and plans in advance. Oh, yes, said Vronsky, heedlessly. A silence followed during which Vronsky, since it was necessary to look at something, looked at Levin, at his legs, at his uniform, and then at his face, and noticing his downcast expression, said, for the sake of saying something, How is it that you, who live in the country, are not a justice of the peace? Your uniform is not that of a justice, I see. "'Because I think that justices of the peace are an absurd institution,' answered Levin, gloomily, but all the time hoping for an opportunity to atone for his former rudeness. "'I do not think so. On the contrary,' said Vronsky, surprised. "'It's all child's play,' interrupted Levin. "'Justices of the peace are unnecessary for us. In eight years I never have had any business with one, and the one case I had was decided exactly contrary to the evidence.' There is a justice of the peace forty verse from me. I had a small matter amounting to two roubles. I had to send for a lawyer, and that cost fifteen. And Levin went on to tell how a muzik had stolen some flour from a miller, and when the miller charged him for it, the muzik made a calumnious complaint. All this was not to the point, and awkwardly put, and Levin himself, while speaking, felt it. Oh, this is such an original, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, with his oily smile. "'Come on. It seems they are balloting.' And they separated. 
"'I don't understand,' said Sergey Ivanovitch, who had noticed his brother's awkward sally. "'I don't understand how it is possible to be so absolutely devoid of political tact. It is just what we Russians lack. The government marshal is our opponent, and you are ami Kuchon, and on intimate terms with him. But why on earth make an enemy of Count Vronsky? Not that I make a friend of him, for I have just refused his invitation to dinner. But he is ours.' Then you asked Nevyadovsky if he was going to be a candidate. It isn't the right way to act. Oh, I don't understand anything about it. It all seems to me unimportant, said Levin gloomily. You say that it is unimportant, but when you mix up in it, you spoil it. Levin was silent, and they entered the large hall. The old marshal had decided to be a candidate, although he felt that there was something up, some trick of preparation and though he knew that not all the districts had nominated him, he still decided to stand. Silence reigned in the hall. The secretary, in a loud voice, explained that votes would now be cast for Mikhail Stefanovich Stekov, captain of the guard, as government marshal. The district marshals went from their desks to the government table with plates in which were the ballots, and the election began. Deposit it at the right whispered Stepan Arkadyevitch to Levin, as he and his brother approached the table behind the district manager. But Levin now forgot the count, which they had explained to him, and was afraid that Stepan Arkadyevitch had made a mistake in saying, at the right. Now Snetkov was the opposition candidate. Going up to the box, Levin held the ballot in his right hand, but thinking that he was wrong, he transferred the ballot to his left hand just in front of the box itself, and consequently deposited it in the wrong place. The tally-keeper who stood by the box, knowing by the mere motion of the elbow how each one voted, involuntarily frowned. There was no reason for him to practice his cleverness. Deep silence reigned, and the click of the ballots was heard. Then a single voice was heard announcing the affirmative and negative votes. The marshal was chosen by a decided majority. A great tumult arose, all rushed toward the door. Snetkov came in, and the nobles surrounded him, offering him their congratulations. "'Well, is it over?' asked Levin of Sergey Ivanovitch. "'On the contrary, it has just begun,' replied Sviatsky, taking the words out of his brother's mouth and smiling. "'The opposition candidate may have more votes.' Levin had forgotten all about this, and only now realized that this was only finessing. But it was a bore to him to recall what the plan had been. He felt a sort of humiliation and a desire to escape from the throng.' As no one paid any heed to him, and he thought he was of no use to anyone, he slipped out into the smaller hall, where, as before, he found consolation in watching the servants. The old servant asked him if he would have something to eat, and Levin consented. After he had eaten a cutlet with beans, and had talked with the servant about their former masters, Levin, not caring to go back to the crowd which was so unpleasant to him, walked about the galleries. The galleries were full of well-dressed ladies, who were leaning over the balustrades, endeavouring not to lose a word of what was said in the hall below, and around them was standing and sitting a throng of elegantly dressed lawyers, professors of the gymnasium with spectacles on, and officers. Everywhere they were talking about the elections, and the proposed change in the marshal, and saying how interesting the voting was. As Levin stood near one group, he heard a lady saying to a lawyer, how glad I am that I heard Kosnuyshev! It pays to go hungry for it. It was charming. How distinctly I could hear all he said. There is not one who equals him in the court. Only Madel, and even he is not nearly so eloquent. 
Finding a comfortable place near the railing, Levin leaned over and tried to look and to listen. All the nobles were sitting behind screens in the parts of the hall devoted to their various districts. In the center of the hall stood a gentleman in uniform, and in a light but clear voice he was saying, "'You will now cast your votes for Staff Captain Yevgeny Ivanovich Aputkin as candidate for the position of Marshal of the Nobility of the Government.' A death-like silence ensued, and again a weak, senile voice was heard. "'He declined.' Again the same thing began again. "'He declined.' So it went on for about an hour. Levin, leaning on the balustrade, looked and listened. At first he was filled with amazement, and anxious to know what it all meant. Then, becoming persuaded that it was beyond his power to comprehend it, it began to bore him. Then, as he thought of the excitement and the angry passions expressed in all the faces, he felt melancholy. He made up his mind to depart, and he started downstairs. As he was passing through the entry of the gallery, he encountered a sad-looking gymnasium scholar walking back and forth with streaming eyes. On the staircase he met a couple, a lady swiftly hurrying along on her heels, and the gentle colleague of his procurer. "'I told you not to be late,' the procurer was saying, just as Levin stood to one side to give the lady room to pass. Levin was on the lowest stair, and was just getting the coat-check out of his waistcoat pocket when the secretary found him. "'Excuse me, Konstantin Dmitrievich. They are balloting.' And the candidate who was now receiving votes was this very Nevyadovsky, whose refusal had seemed to him so explicit. Levin started to go into the hall. The door was locked. The secretary knocked. The door opened, and as he entered he met two very red-faced proprietors. "'I cannot endure it,' said one of the red-faced proprietors. Immediately behind the proprietor appeared the old government marshal. His face was terrible in its expression of fright and weakness. "'I told you not to let anyone go out!' he shouted to the guard. "'I let someone in, Your Excellency.' "'Oh, Lord!' and, sighing painfully, the old marshal, slinking along in his white pantaloons, with bowed head, went through the hall to the great table. The vote was counted, and Nevyadovsky, as had been planned, was government marshal. Many were happy, many were satisfied, gay, many were enthusiastic, many were dissatisfied and unhappy. The old government marshal was in despair, and could not disguise it. When Nevyadovsky went out into the hall, the throng surrounded him and expressed their enthusiasm toward him, as they had done toward the governor when he opened the election, and as they had done toward Snetkov when he was elected. End of chapter 30part 6 chapter 31 of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel on this day the newly elected marshal of the government and many of the new party which triumphed with him dined with vronsky the count came to the elections because it was tiresome in the country and it was necessary for him to assert his independence before anna and also because he wished to render a service to Sviatsky in return for similar favors shown him at the Zvansto elections, and last and principally because he intended strictly to fulfill the duties which he imposed upon himself as a noble and a landowner. But he had never anticipated the intense interest which he would take in the elections or the success with which he would play his part. He was a perfectly new man among the nobles. He was evidently successful and he was not mistaken in supposing that he already inspired confidence. 
This sudden influence was due to his wealth and distinction, and to the fine house which he occupied in town, a house which an old friend of his, Shurkov, a financier and the director of a flourishing bank at Kashin, had given up to him, and partly to an excellent cook whom he brought with him, and to his friendship with the governor, who was his ally and a protecting ally, but above all to his simple and impartial treatment of everyone, so that the majority of the nobles quickly changed their minds in regard to the reputation he had acquired of being proud. He himself felt that, with the exception of this silly gentleman who had married Kitty Sherbatsky, and who, apropos de bot, had been disposed foolishly to quarrel with him and to say all manner of foolish things, everybody whom he met was disposed to side with him. He clearly saw, and others recognized the fact, that he had very largely contributed to Nevyadovsky's success, and now, as he sat at the head of his own table celebrating Nevyadovsky's election, he experienced a pleasant feeling of triumphant pride in his choice. He was so much interested in the election that he determined that, if he should be married at the end of the next three years, he would run as a candidate, just as once when, after having won a prize by means of his jockey, he had decided to run a race himself. Now he was celebrating the triumph of his jockey. Vronsky sat at the head of the table, but he placed the young governor at his right. Vronsky saw that all looked upon him as the Kosyan of the government, who had triumphantly opened the elections, who had gained by his speech great consideration and even worship. But for Vronsky, he was nothing more than Katka Maslov, such was his nickname at the Corps of Pages, who used to be confused in his presence, and whom he tried to put at his ease. At his left he placed Nevyadovsky, a young man with a sarcastic and impenetrable face. Toward him Vronsky showed respectful consideration. Sviatsky accepted his own failure gaily. Indeed, as he said, lifting his glass to Nevyadovsky, he could not call it a failure. It would be impossible to find a better representative of the new tendencies which the nobility was to follow. And therefore, as he said, everything that was honorable stood on the side of the success just won, and triumphed with it. Stefan Arkadyevitch also was gay, because he was having such a good time, and because everyone else was so happy. During the admirable dinner they reviewed the various episodes of the elections. Sviatsky gave a comical travesty of the former marshal's tearful discourse, and turning to Nevyadovsky, he advised His Excellency to choose a more complicated manner of verifying his accounts than by tears. Another noble, with a turn for humor, related how lackeys in short clothes had been ordered for the former marshal's ball, and how now these lackeys would have to be discharged unless the new marshal of the government should give balls with lackeys in short clothes. During all the time of the dinner, whenever they addressed Nevyadovsky, they called him Your Excellency, and all spoke of him as our government marshal. This was spoken with the same sort of satisfaction as people feel when they address a newly married woman as Madame, and add her husband's name. Nevyadovsky pretended that he was not only indifferent, but even scorned this new title, but it was evident that he was happy, and was exercising self-control not to betray his enthusiasm, since to do so would not be becoming to the new liberal environment in which they all found themselves. After dinner a number of telegrams were sent off to people who were interested in the result of the elections, and Stefan Arkadyevitch, who felt very gay, sent Darya Alexandrovna a dispatch thus worded, Nevyadovsky elected by twenty majority, I am well, regards to all. He dictated it aloud, and added, I want to make them feel happy, 
But when Darya Alexandrovna received the dispatch, she only sighed for the rouble which it cost, and she knew well that it was sent during a dinner. She knew that Steva had a weakness at the end of dinners, faire jour la telegraphe. The dinner was excellent, and the wines came from no Russian dealer, but were directly imported from abroad, and everything was noble, simple, and joyous. The guests, twenty in number, were selected by Sviatsky from among the new liberal workers, and they were united in sentiments, keen-witted, and thoroughly well-bred. They drank many toasts, accompanied by witty speeches, in honor of the new marshal, and of the governor, and of the director of the bank, and of our beloved host. Vronsky was contented. He had never expected to find in the provinces such distinguished society. Toward the end of the dinner the gaiety redoubled, and the governor asked Vronsky to attend a concert arranged for the benefit of our brothers by his wife, who wanted to make his acquaintance. There will be a ball afterwards, and you shall see our beauty. In fact, she is remarkable. Not in my line, answered Vronsky in English. He liked the phrase, but he smiled and promised to go. Just before they left the table, and while they were lighting their cigars, Vronsky's valet approached him, bringing a note on a tray. From Vosvizanskoya, by a special messenger, said the man, with a significant expression. It is remarkable how much he looks like the colleague of the procureur, Sventitsky, said one of the guests in French, referring to the valet, while Vronsky, with a frown on his brow, was reading the note. The note was from Anna and Vronsky knew, before he read it through, what was in it. He had promised, as the elections were to last five days, to return on Friday, but it was now Saturday, and he knew that the letter would be full of reproaches because he had not fulfilled his promise. The one he had sent off the afternoon before had evidently not been received. The tenor of the note was what he expected, but its form was a great surprise, and extremely unpleasant to him. Ani is very sick, and the doctor says it may be pneumonia. I shall go wild, here all alone. The Princess Barbara is only a hindrance instead of a help. I expected you day before yesterday, and now I send a messenger to know where you are and what you are doing. I wanted to come myself, but hesitated, knowing that it would be disagreeable to you. Send some answer, that I may know what to do. The child was ill, and she had wished to come herself. A sick daughter, and this hostile tone— Vronsky was impressed by the antithesis between the jolly, careless company and the moody, exacting love to which he was obliged to return. But he was obliged to go, and he left by the first train that would take him home that night. End of chapter 31 Part 6, Chapter 32 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. Before Vronsky's departure for the election, Anna, coming to the conclusion that the scenes which had always taken place every time he left her for a journey might serve to cool his love rather than attach him more firmly to her, resolved to control herself to the best of her ability, so as to endure calmly the separation from him. But the cold, stern look which he had given her when he came to tell her about his journey had wounded her, and he was hardly out of her sight before her resolution was shaken. In her solitude, as she began to think over his cold look, which seemed to hint at a desire for liberty, she came back, as she always did, to one thing, to the consciousness of her humiliation. He has the right to go when and where he pleases, 
not only to go, but to abandon me. He has all the rights, and I have none. But as he knows this, he ought not to have done this. And yet what has he done? He looked at me with a hard, stern look. Of course, that is vague, intangible. Still, he did not formerly look at me so, and it signifies much, she thought. That look proves that he is growing cold toward me. And, although she was persuaded that he had begun to grow cold toward her, still there was nothing she could do. There was no change she could bring about in her relations toward him. Just as before, she could retain his affections only by her love, by her fascination. And, just as before, the only way she could keep herself from thinking what would happen if he should abandon her, she busied herself incessantly all day. At night she took morphine. To be sure, there was one means left, not to keep him with her. For this she wished nothing else but his love, but to bind him to her, to be in such a relation to him that he would not abandon her. This means was divorce and marriage, and she began to desire it, and resolved that she would agree to it the first time he or Steva spoke about it again. With such thoughts she spent five days without him, the five days he expected to be away. Drives and walks, conversations with the Princess Vivara, visits to the hospital, and, above all, reading, the reading of one book after another, occupied her time. But on the sixth day, when the coachman returned without bringing Vronsky, she felt that she no longer had strength enough to smother the thought about him and what he was doing at Kashin. Just at this very time her little girl was taken ill. Anna attended to her, but it did not divert her mind, the more as the little one was not dangerously ill. Do the best she could, she did not love this child, and she could not pretend to feelings which had no existence. On the evening of the sixth day, while she was entirely alone, she felt such apprehension about him that she almost made up her mind to start for the city herself. But after a long deliberation, she wrote the prevaricating note and sent it by a special messenger. When, the next morning, she received his letter, she regretted hers. With horror she anticipated the repetition of that severe look which he would give her on his return, especially when he learned that his daughter had not been dangerously ill but still she was glad she had written him. Now Anna acknowledged to herself that he might be annoyed by her, that he might miss his liberty, but yet she was glad that he was coming. Suppose he was annoyed by her, still he would be there with her so that she could see him, so that she should be aware of his every motion. She was sitting in the parlour, by the lamp, reading a new book of Taine's, listening to the sound of the wind outside, and watching every moment for the arrival of the carriage. Several times she thought that she heard the rumble of wheels, but she was deceived. At last she distinctly heard not only the wheels, but the coachman's voice, and the carriage rolling under the covered porch. The Princess Vivara, who was laying out a game of patience, heard it too. Anna's face flushed. She rose, but, instead of going down, as she had twice done already, she stopped. She was suddenly ashamed at her deception, and still more alarmed by the doubt as to how he would receive her. All her irritation had vanished. All she feared was Vronsky's displeasure. She remembered that her daughter for two days now had been perfectly well. She was annoyed that the child should recover just as she sent off the letter. And then she realized that he was there, himself, with his eyes, his hands. She heard his voice, joy filled her heart, and, forgetting everything, she ran to meet him. 
"'How is Annie?' he asked anxiously, from the bottom of the stairs, as she ran swiftly down. He was seated in a chair, and his lackey was pulling off his furred boots. "'All right. Much better.' "'And you?' he asked, shaking himself. She seized his two hands and drew him towards her, looking into his eyes. "'Well, I am very glad,' he said, coldly surveying her, her headdress, her whole toilet, which, as he knew, had been put on expressly for him. All this pleased him, but how many times had the same thing pleased him? And that stony, severe expression, which Anna so much dreaded, remained on his face. "'Well, I am very glad. And how are you?' he asked, kissing her hand, after he had wiped his damp moustache. "'It is all the same to me,' thought Anna. "'If only he is here. And when he is here he cannot help loving me. He does not dare not to love me.' The evening passed pleasantly and merrily in the presence of the Princess Vivara, who complained to him that when he was away Anna took morphine. "'What can I do? I cannot sleep. My thoughts are distracting. When he is here, I never take it. Almost never.' Vronsky told about the elections, and Anna, by her questions, cleverly led him to talk about what especially pleased him, his own success. Then she told him all the interesting things that had happened since he went away, and took care to speak of nothing unpleasant. But late in the evening, when they were alone, Anna, seeing that she had him at her feet again, wished to efface the unpleasant effect of her letter. She said, "'Confess that you were displeased to receive my letter, and that you did not believe me.' As soon as she spoke she saw that, though he was affectionately disposed toward her, he did not forgive this. "'Yes,' answered he, "'your letter was strange. Annie was sick.' and yet you yourself wanted to come. Both were true. Well, I do not doubt it. Yes, you do doubt. I see that you are angry. Not for one minute. But what vexes me is that you will not admit that there are duties. What duties? Going to concerts? We won't talk about it. Why not talk about it? I only mean that imperious duties may meet us. Now, for instance, I shall have to go to Moscow on business. Ah, Anna, why are you so irritable? Don't you know that I cannot live without you? If this is the way, said Anna, changing her tone suddenly, then you are tired of this kind of life. Yes, you are home one day, and go away the next. Anna, this is cruel. I am ready to give up my whole life. But she would not listen to him. If you are going to Moscow, I shall go with you. I will not stay here alone. We must either live together or separate. But you know I ask nothing more than to live with you, but for that the divorce is necessary. I will write him. I see that I cannot continue to live in this way, but I am going with you to Moscow. You really threaten me, but all I ask in the world is not to be separated from you, said Vronsky, smiling. As the Count spoke these affectionate words, the look in his eyes was not only icy, but wrathful, like that of a man persecuted and exasperated. She saw his look, and accurately read its meaning. "'If this is so, then it is misfortune,' said this look. The expression was only momentary, but she never forgot it. Anna wrote to her husband, begging him to grant the divorce, and toward the end of November, after separating from the Princess Vavara, who had gone to Petersburg, she went to Moscow with Vronsky. 
expecting every day to get Alexey Alexandrovitch's reply, and immediately afterward to secure the divorce, they set up their establishment as if they were married. End of chapter 32 and end of part 6 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. Part 7, Chapter 1 of Anna Karenina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. Part 7, Chapter 1. The Levins had been in Moscow for two months and the time fixed by competent authorities for Kitty's deliverance was already past. But she was still waiting, and there was no sign that the time was any nearer than it had been two months before. The doctor, and the midwife, and Dolly, and her mother, and especially Levin, who could not without terror think of the approaching event, now began to feel impatient and anxious. Kitty alone kept perfectly calm and happy. She now clearly recognized in her heart the birth of a new feeling of love for the child, which already partly existed for her, and she entertained this feeling with joy. The child was no longer only a part of her. Even now it already lived in its own independent life at times. This caused her suffering, but at the same time she felt like laughing, with a strange unknown joy. All whom she loved were with her, and all were so good to her, took such care of her, and tried so to make everything pleasant for her, that, if she had not known and felt that the end must soon come, this would have been the happiest and best part of her life. Only one thing clouded her perfect happiness, and this was that her husband was different from the leaven she loved, or the leaven that had lived in the country. She had loved his calm, gentle, and hospitable ways in the country. In the city he seemed all the time restless and on his guard, as if he feared that someone was going to insult him or her. There in the country he was usefully occupied, and seemed to know that he was in his place. Here in the city he was constantly on the go, as if he were afraid of forgetting something, but he had nothing really to do, and she felt sorry for him. But she knew that to his friends he was not an object of commiseration, and when in society she looked at him as one studies those who are beloved, endeavouring to look on him as a stranger, and see what effect he produced on others, she saw with anxiety the danger that she herself might become jealous of him for the reason that he was not at all pitiable, but rather an exceedingly attractive man by reason of his dignified, rather old-fashioned, shy politeness to ladies, his strong physique, and his very expressive face. But she read his inner nature. She saw that he was not himself, otherwise she could not define his actions. But sometimes in her heart she reproached him because he could not adapt himself to city life. Sometimes even she confessed that it was really difficult for him to conduct his life so as to please her. But, indeed, what could he find to do? He was not fond of cards. He did not go to the clubs. She now knew what it meant to frequent the company of high livers, like Oblonsky. It meant to drink and to go to places. She could not think without horror of where these men were in the habit of going. Should he go into society? She knew that to enjoy that it would be necessary to find pleasure in the company of young ladies, and she could not desire that. Then should he sit at home with her, with her mother, and her sister? But however pleasant these conversations might be to her, she knew that they must be wearisome to him. What, then, remained for him to do? 
Was he to go on with his book? He intended to do this, and began to make researches in the public library, but, as he confessed to Kitty, the more he had nothing to do, the less time he had. Moreover, he complained to her that too much was said about his book, and therefore his ideas were thrown into confusion, and that his interest in his work was flagging. One result of their life in Moscow was that there were no more quarrels between them, either because city conditions were different, or because both were beginning to be more guarded and prudent. The fact remained that, since they left the country, the scenes of jealousy which they feared might arise were not repeated. In these circumstances, one very important affair for them both took place. Kitty had a meeting with Vronsky. Kitty's godmother, the old Princess Maria Borisovna, was always very fond of her, and wanted to see her. Kitty, though owing to her condition she was not going out now, went with her father to see the stately old princess, and there she met Vronsky. At this meeting Kitty could reproach herself only for the fact that for the moment when she first saw the features, once so familiar, she felt her heart beat fast, and her face redden. But her emotion lasted only a few seconds. The old prince hastened to begin an animated conversation with Vronsky, and by the time he had finished Kitty was ready to look at Vronsky, or to talk with him, if need be, just as she was talking with the princess, and, what was more, without a smile or an intonation which would have been disagreeable to her husband, whose invisible presence, as it were, she felt near her at that moment. She exchanged some words with Vronsky, smiled serenely when he jestingly called the assembly at Kashin, our parliament, she had to smile so as to show that she understood the jest. Then she addressed herself to the old princess, and did not turn her head until Vronsky rose to take leave. Then she looked at him, but evidently it was only because it is impolite not to look at a man when he bows. She was grateful to her father because he said nothing about this meeting with Vronsky, but Kitty understood from his especial tenderness after their visit, during their usual walk, that he was satisfied with her. She felt satisfied with herself. She had never anticipated that she should have the strength of mind to remember all the details of her former feelings toward Vronsky, and yet to seem, and to feel perfectly indifferent and calm in his presence. Levin turned far more crimson than she did when she told him about her meeting with Vronsky at the house of the Princess Maria Beresovna. It was very hard for her to tell him about it, and still harder to go on relating the details of the meeting, for the reason that he did not ask her a question, but only gazed at her and frowned. It was such a pity that you weren't there, she said to her husband, not in the room, for before you I should not have been so self-possessed. I'm blushing now ever and ever so much more than I did then, said she, blushing till the tears came. But if you could have looked through the keyhole. Her sincere eyes told Levin that she was satisfied with her behavior, and, though she blushed, he immediately became calm. He asked her some questions, just as she wished him to do, when he had heard the whole story, even to the detail that she could not help blushing for the first second, and afterward was perfectly at her ease as if she had never met him before, Levin grew extraordinarily gay, and declared that he was glad of it, and that in future he should not behave so foolishly as he had done at the elections, but that when he met Vronsky again he should be as friendly as possible. "'It is so painful to look on him almost as an enemy, whom it is hard to meet. I am very, very glad.' End of chapter 1
Read by Marianne Spiegel. Please don't forget to call it the bowls, said Kitty, as her husband came into her room about eleven o'clock in the morning before going out. I know that you are going to dine at the club because Papa wrote to you, but what are you going to do this morning? I'm only going to Katavasov's. Why are you going so early? He promised to introduce me to Metrov. He's a famous scholar from Petersburg. I want to talk over my book with him. Oh, yes. Wasn't it his article you were praising? Well, and after that? Possibly to the tribunal, about that affair of my sister's. Aren't you going to the concert? she asked. No. Why should I go alone? Do go. They're going to give those new pieces. It will interest you. I should certainly go. Well, at all events, I shall come home before dinner, he said, looking at his watch. Put on your best coat, so as to go to the Countess Bowles. Why, is that really necessary? Oh, certainly. The Count himself came here. Now, what does it cost you? You go, you sit down, you talk five minutes about the weather, then you get up and go. Well, you don't realize that I am so out of practice, that I feel abashed. How absurd it is for a strange man to come to a house, to sit down, to stay a little while without any business, to find himself in the way, feel awkward, and then go. Kitty laughed. Yes, but didn't you used to make calls before you were married? Yes, but I was always bashful, said he, and now I am so out of the way of it that, by heavens, I would rather not have any dinner for two days than make this call. I am so bashful. It seems to me as if they must take offence and say, Why do you come without business? No, they don't take offence. I will answer that for you, said Kitty, looking brightly into his face. She took his hand. Now, Prashai, please go. He kissed his wife's hand and was about to go when she stopped him. Kostya, do you know I have only fifty roubles left? Well, I will go and get some from the bank. How much do you want? said he, with his well-known expression of vexation. No, wait, she detained him by the arm. Let us talk about this a moment. This troubles me. I try not to buy anything unnecessary. Still, the money runs away. We must retrench somehow or other. Not at all, said Levin with a little cough, and looking askance upon her. She knew this cough. It was a sign of strong vexation, not with her, but with himself. He was actually discontented, not because much money was spent, but because he was reminded of what he wanted to forget. "'I have ordered Sokolov to sell the corn, and to get the rent of the mill in advance. We shall have money enough.' "'No, but I fear that, as a general thing—' "'No, not at all. Not at all,' he repeated. "'Well, good-bye, darling. Sometimes I wish I hadn't listened to Mamma. How happy we were in the country!' I tire you all, waiting for me, and the money we spend. Not at all. Not at all. Not one single time since we were married till now have I thought that things would have been better than they are. Truly, said she, looking into his face. He said that, thinking only to comfort her, but when he saw her gentle, honest eyes turned to him with an inquiring look, he repeated what he had said with his whole heart, and he remembered what was coming to them so soon. How do you feel this morning? Do you think it will be soon? he asked, taking both her hands in his. I sometimes think that I don't think and don't know anything. And you don't feel afraid? 
she smiled disdainfully. Not the least bit. No, nothing will happen today. Don't worry. If that is so, then I am going to Kalevasov's. I am going with Papa to take a little walk on the boulevard. We are going to see Dolly. I shall expect you back before dinner. Oh, there. Do you know Dolly's position is getting to be entirely unendurable? She is in debt on every side, and hasn't any money at all. We talked about it yesterday with Mamma and Arseny. This was her sister Natalia Luvla's husband. And they decided that you should scold Steva. It is truly unendurable. It is impossible for Papa to speak about it. But if you and he— Well, what can we do? asked Levin. You had better go to Arseny's and talk with him. He will tell you what we decided about it. All right. I will follow Arseny's advice. Then I will go directly to his house. And by the way, if he is still at the concert, then I will go with Natalie. So, good-bye. On the staircase, the old bachelor's servant, Kuzma, who acted in the city as steward, stopped his master. Krasovichka has just been shod, and it lamed her. This was Levin's left pole horse, which he had brought from the country. What shall I do? said he. When Levin established himself in Moscow, he brought his horses from the country. He wished to set up as good a stable as possible, but not to have it cost too much. It seemed to him now that hired horses would have been less expensive, and even as it was, he was often obliged to hire of the Izvoschek. Take her to the veterinary. Perhaps she is going to have a swimmer. Well, how shall you arrange for Katerina Alexandrovna? asked Kuzma. Levin was now no longer troubled, as he had been at first, when he first came to Moscow, that for the drive from Vraz to Zensko, to Zinstev Vrazdek, it was necessary to have a span of heavy horses harnessed into his heavy carriage, and to drive at four versts through mealy snow, and keep them waiting four hours there, and to have to pay five roubles for it. Now it seemed to him the natural thing to do. "'Get a pair of horses from the Izvozchek, and put them into our carriage.' I will obey. After having thus decided simply and quickly, thanks to his training in city ways, a labor which in the country would have cost him much trouble and attention, Levin went out on the porch, and, beckoning to an Izvozchik, took his seat in the cab, and rode off to the Nikitskaya street. On the way the question of money did not occupy him, but he thought over how he was going to make the acquaintance of the sociological savant from Petersburg, and what he should say to him in regard to his treatise. It was only during the first part of his stay in Moscow that Levin, who had been used to the productive ways of the country, was amazed at the strange and unavoidable expenses which met him on every side. But now he was wanted to them. He had somewhat the same experience as he had been told drunken men went through. Each successive glass made him more reckless. When Levin took the first hundred-rouble note for the purchase of liveries for the lackey and Swiss, he could not avoid the consideration that these liveries were wholly useless to any one, and yet they seemed to be unavoidable and indispensable, judging from the amazement of Kitty and her mother, when he made the remark that they might go without them, and he put it to himself that the liveries represented the wages of two laborers for a year, that is to say, about three hundred working days from early in the morning till late at night, so that the first hundred-rouble note corresponded to the first glass. But the second bill of twenty-eight roubles, expended for the purchase of provisions for a family dinner, caused him less trouble, though he still mentally computed that this money represented nine chetverts, or more than fifty bushels, of oats, 
which these same workmen, at the cost of many groans, had mowed, bound into sheaves, threshed, winnowed, gathered up, and put into bags. And now the money spent in this way had long ceased to evoke any such considerations, but they flew around him like little birds. He had long ceased to ask himself whether the pleasure purchased by this money was anywhere near commensurate with the labor spent in acquiring it. He also forgot the common principle of economics, that there is a certain price below which it is impossible to sell grain except at a loss. His rye, the price of which he had kept up so long, had to be sold at ten kopecks a bushel cheaper than he had sold it a month earlier. Even the calculation that if he kept on at his present rate of expenditure it would be impossible to get through the year without getting into debt did not cause him any anxiety. Only one thing troubled him, the keeping up his bank account, without asking how, so that there might be always enough for the daily needs of the household. And up to the present time he had succeeded in doing this, but now his deposit at the bank had run low, and he did not know exactly how to restore it. And this problem was causing him some anxiety just at the time when Kitty asked him for more money. But he did not want to bother about that just now. So he drove away, thinking of Katavasov and his approaching acquaintance with Metrov. End of chapter 2 Part 7, Chapter 3 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. During his present stay in Moscow, Levin had once more come into intimate relationship with his old university friend, Professor Katavasov, whom he had not seen since the time of his marriage. Katavasov was agreeable to him because of the clearness and simplicity of his philosophy. Levin thought that the clearness of his philosophy arose from the poverty of his nature while Katavasov thought that the incoherence of Levin's ideas arose from a lack of mental discipline. But Katavasov's lucidity was agreeable to Levin, and Levin's fecundity of undisciplined ideas was agreeable to Katavasov, and they both liked to meet and discuss together. Levin had read several passages from his treatise to Katavasov, who had liked them. The evening before, Katavasov, happening to meet Levin at a public lecture, told him that the celebrated scholar, Professor Metrov, whose article had pleased Levin, was in Moscow, and was greatly interested in what he had heard of Levin's work. He was to be at Katavasov's house the next day at eleven o'clock, and would be delighted to make Levin's acquaintance. "'Delighted to see you, Batyushka,' said Katavasov, receiving Levin in his reception-room. "'I heard the bell, and wondered if it could be time. And now, what do you think of the Montenegrins?' It looks to me like war. What makes you think so? asked Levin. Katavasov, in a few words, told him the latest news, and then, taking him into his library, introduced him to a short, thick-set, and very pleasant-looking man. It was Metrov. The conversation for a short time turned on politics, and on the views held by the high authorities in Petersburg in regard to the recent elections. Metrov, in regard to this, quoted some significant words spoken by the emperor and one of the ministers, which he had heard from a reliable source. Katavasov had heard from an equally reliable source that the emperor had said something quite different. Levin tried to imagine to himself the conditions in which the words in either case might have been said, and the conversation on this theme came to an end. "'Well,' 
here is the gentleman who is writing a book on the natural condition of the laborer in relation to the soil said katavasov i am not a specialist but it pleases me as a naturalist that he does not consider the human race outside zoological laws but recognizes man's dependence on his environment and seeks to find in this dependence the laws of his development that is very interesting said metrov i began simply to write a book on rural economy said levin reddening but in studying the principal instrument the laborer i arrived at a decidedly unexpected conclusion in spite of myself and levin expatiated on his ideas trying the ground carefully as he did so for he knew that metrov had written an article against the current views on political economy and how far he could hope for sympathy in his new views he did not know and could not tell from the scholar's calm intellectual face how in your opinion does the russian laborer differ from that of other peoples asked metrov is it from the point of view which you call zoological or from that of the material conditions in which he finds himself this way of putting the question proved to levin how widely their opinions diverged nevertheless he continued to set forth his theory which was based on the idea that the russian people could not have the same relation to the soil as the other european nations and to prove this position he hastened to add that in his opinion the russian people feels instinctively predestined to populate the immense uncultivated tracts stretching toward the east it is easy to be mistaken about the general destiny of a people by forming premature conclusions said metrov interrupting levin and the situation of the laborer will always depend on his relation to land and capital and without giving levin time to reply he began to explain the peculiarity of his own views levin did not understand because he did not try to understand in what consisted the peculiarity of his views he saw that metrov like all the rest notwithstanding his article in which he refuted the teachings of the economists looked on the condition of the russian people from the standpoint of capital wages and rent though he was obliged to confess that for the eastern and by far the greater part of russia there was no such thing as rent that for nine-tenths of russia's eighty millions wages consisted in a bare subsistence and the capital did not yet exist except as it was represented by the most primitive tools although metrov differed from other political economists in many ways he regarded the laborer from this point of view and he had a new theory as to wages which he demonstrated at length levin listened with some disgust and tried to reply he wanted to interrupt metrov in order to express his own opinions which he felt deserved to be heard at far greater length but finally recognizing that they looked on the subject from such a radically opposite standpoint that they could never understand each other he no longer tried to refute him he let metrov talk and only listened though he was not at all interested in what he said nevertheless he experienced a certain pleasure in listening to him he was flattered that such a learned man would condescend to give him the benefit of his thoughts sometimes by a hint pointing to a complete phase of the subject and showing him so much deference as to one thoroughly versed in the subject he ascribed this to his own merits he did not know that metrov having talked this over with all his own intimates on this subject was glad to have a new auditor and moreover that he liked to talk with any one on the subjects that occupied him so as to elucidate certain points for his own benefit 
We shall be late, remarked Katavasov, consulting his watch as soon as Metrov had concluded his argument. Yes, there is a special session today of the Society of Friends, in honor of the semi-centennial of Svintich, he added in reply to Levin's question. We meet at the house of Pyotr Ivanuitch. I promised to speak on his work in zoology. Come with us. It will be interesting. Yes, it is high time, said Metrov. Come with us, and then afterward, if you like, come home with me. I should greatly like to hear your work. It is only a sketch, not worth much, but I should like to go with you to the session. What is that, Batyushka? Have you heard? He gave a special opinion, said Katavasov, who was putting on his dress coat in the next room. And the talk turned to the university question. The university question was a very important topic this winter in Moscow. Three old professors in the council would not accept the opinion of the younger ones. The younger ones expressed a special opinion. This opinion, according to some, was dreadful, according to others, was the simplest and most righteous of opinions, and the professors were divided into two parties. The one to which Katavasov belonged saw in the opposition dastardly violation of faith and deception. The other side charged their opponents with childishness and lack of confidence in the authorities. Levin, although he was not connected with the university, had heard and talked much during his stay in Moscow regarding this affair, and had his own opinion regarding it. So he took part in the conversation, which was continued even after they had got out into the street, and until they had all three reached the buildings of the old university. The session had already begun. Six men were sitting around a table covered with a cloth, and one of them, nearly doubled up over a manuscript, was reading something. Katavasov and Metrov took their places at the table. Levin sat down in an unoccupied chair near a student, and asked him in a low voice what they were reading. The student, looking angrily at Levin, replied, The biography. Levin did not care much for the savant's biography. Still, he could not help listening, and he learned various interesting particulars of the life of the celebrated man. When the reader came to an end, the chairman congratulated him, and then read some verses which had been sent to him in honor of the occasion by the poet Mient, of whose work he spoke eulogistically. Then Katavasov read in his loud, harsh voice a sketch of the work of Svintich. When Katavasov had finished, Levin looked at his watch and found that it was already two o'clock. He realized that he should lose the concert if he should read his treatise to Metrov, and, moreover, he no longer cared to do it. During the reading of the papers he had come to a conclusion regarding the conversation he had just had. It was clear to his own mind that, though Metrov's ideas very likely had some value, yet his own ideas also had value, and that ideas could be made clear and profitable only when every person should work separately in his chosen path, but that the communication of these ideas was perfectly profitless. And, having decided to decline Metrov's invitation, Levin, at the end of the session, went up to him. Metrov introduced Levin to the chairman, with whom he was talking about the political news. Thereupon Metrov told the chairman what he had already told Levin, and Levin made the same remarks as he had made that morning, but for the sake of variety he also told his new theory, which had just come into his mind. After this the conversation again turned on the university question. As Levin had already heard as much as he cared to about this, he made haste to tell Metrov that he regretted that he could not accept his invitation, bade him good-bye, and hastened to Lvov's. End of chapter 3
Part Seven, Chapter Four of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Lvov, who had married Natalie, Kitty's sister, had spent his life in the European capitals, where he had not only received his education, but had also pursued his diplomatic career. The year before, he had resigned his diplomatic appointment not because it was distasteful to him, for he never found anything distasteful to him, and had accepted a position in the department of the palace in Moscow, so that he might be able to give a better education to his two sons. In spite of very different opinions and habits, and the fact that Lvov was considerably older than Levin, they had seen much of each other this autumn, and had become great friends. Levin found his brother-in-law at home, and went in without ceremony. Lvov, in a housecoat with a belt, and in chamois-skin slippers, was sitting in an armchair, and with blue glasses was reading a book which rested on a stand, while he held a half-burned cigar in his shapely hand. His handsome, delicate, and still youthful face, to which his shining, silvery hair gave an expression of aristocratic dignity, lighted up with a smile as he saw Levin. "'Good! I was just going to send to find out about you all. How is Kitty?' said he, and rising, he pushed forward a rocking-chair. "'Sit down here. You'll find this better. Have you read the last circular in the Journal de St. Petersburg? I find it excellent,' said he, with a slight French accent. Levin informed him of what he had heard as to the reports in circulation at Petersburg, and, after having spoken of politics, he told about his acquaintance with Metrov and the session at the university. This greatly interested Lvov. "'There, I envy you your intimacy in that learned society,' said he, and he went on speaking, not in Russian, but in French, which was far more familiar to him. True, I could not meet them very well. My public duties, and my occupation with the children, would prevent it. And then, I do not feel ashamed to say that my own education is too faulty.' "'I can't think that,' said Levin, with a smile, and, as always, touched by his modest opinion of himself, expressed not for the sake of bringing out a flattering contradiction, but genuine and honest. Oh, dear, I now feel how little I know. Now that I am educating my sons, I am obliged to refresh my memory. I learn my lessons over again, just as in your estate you have to have workers and overseers, so here it needs someone to watch the teachers. But see what I am reading— and he pointed to the grammar of Buzleoff lying on the stand. Misha has to learn it, and it is so hard. Now explain this to me. Levin wanted to explain to him that it was impossible to understand it, that it simply had to be learned, but Lvov did not agree with him. Yes, now you are making fun of it. On the contrary, you can't imagine how much I learn, when I look at you, about the way to teach children. Well, you could not learn much from me. I only know that I never saw children so well brought up as yours, and I should not want better children than yours. Lvov evidently wanted to restrain himself so as not to betray his satisfaction, but his face lighted up with a smile. Only let them be better than I. That is all that I want. But you don't know the bother, he began, with lads who, like mine, have been allowed to run wild abroad. You are regulating all that, they are such capable children. The main thing is, their moral training. 
and this is what I learn in looking at your children. You speak of the moral training. You can't imagine how hard it is. Just as soon as you have conquered one crop of weeds, others spring up, and there is always a fight. If you don't have support in religion, between ourselves, no father on earth, relying on his own strength and without this help, could ever succeed in training them. This conversation, which was extremely interesting to Levin, was interrupted by the pretty Natalie Alexandrovna, dressed for going out. "'I didn't know you were here,' said she to Levin, evidently not regretting, but even rejoicing that she had interrupted his conversation, which was too long for her pleasure. "'Well, and how is Kitty? I am going to dine with you today. See here, Arseny,' she said, turning to her husband, "'you take the carriage.' and between husband and wife began a discussion of the question how they should spend the day. As the husband had to attend to his official business, and the wife was going to the concert into a public session of the Committee of the South East, it was needful to discuss and think it all over. Levin, as a member of the family, was obliged to take part in these plans. It was decided that he should go with Natalie to the concert and to the public meeting, and then send the carriage to the office for Arseny, who would come and take her to Kitty's, or if he was not yet ready, Levin would serve as her escort. "'This man is spoiling me,' said Lvov to his wife. "'He assures me that our children are lovely, when I know that they are full of faults.' "'Arseny goes to extremes. I always say so,' said his wife. "'If you expect perfection, you will never be satisfied. And Papa is right in saying that when we were children they went to one extreme. They kept us on the entresol, while the parents lived in the bellotage but now, on the contrary, parents live in the lumber-room, and the children in the bellotage. The parents are now of no account. Everything must be for the children. "'Supposing this is more agreeable,' suggested Lvov, with his winning smile, as he offered her his arm. "'Anyone not knowing you would think that you were not a mother, but a stepmother.' "'No, it is not good to go to extremes in anything,' said Natalie, gently." laying his paper-cutter in its proper place on the table. "'Ah, here they are. Come in, ye perfect children,' said Lvov to the handsome lads who came in and, after bowing to Levin, went to their father, evidently wishing to ask some favour of him. Levin wanted to speak with them and to hear what they said to their father, but Natalie was talking with him, and just then Lvov's colleague, Makhotin, in his court uniform, came into the room, and began a lively conversation about Herzegovina, the Princess Korzynski, and the premature death of Madame Apraxin. Levin forgot all about Kitty's message. He remembered it just as they reached the vestibule. "'Oh, Kitty commissioned me to speak with you about Oblonsky,' said he, as Lvov went with them to the head of the staircase. "'Yes, yes. Maman wants us, les beaux-frères, to attack him,' said Lvov, turning red. "'But how can I?' "'Then I will undertake it,' said the smiling Madame Lvov, who, wrapped up in her white dogskin rotunda, was waiting till they should finish talking. End of chapter 4 Part 7, Chapter 5 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Two very interesting pieces were to be given at the matinee. One was a fantasia, or symphonic poem, called The King Lear of the Steps, 
The other was a quartet dedicated to the memory of Bach. Both pieces were new and of the new school, and Levin desired to form his own opinion in regard to them. So, after he had conducted his sister-in-law to her place, he took his stand near a column, and determined to listen as attentively and conscientiously as possible. He tried not to allow his attention to be distracted and his impression spoiled by letting his eyes follow the white cravated Kapellmeister's waving arms, which were always so disturbing to the musical attention, or by looking at the ladies in their hats, who for concerts take especial pains to tie ribbons round their ears, or at all the faces either occupied with nothing or occupied with the most heterogeneous interests, music being the last. He tried to avoid meeting the connoisseurs and the chatterers, but he stood alone by himself, looking down and listening. But the more he listened to the King Lear fantasia, the more he felt the impossibility of forming a clear and exact idea of it. The musical thought, at the moment of its development, was constantly interrupted by the introduction of new themes, or vanished, leaving only the impression of a complicated and laborious attempt at instrumentation. But these same new themes, beautiful as some of them were, gave an unpleasant impression, because they were not expected or prepared for. Gaiety and sadness and despair and tenderness and triumph followed one another like the incoherent thoughts of a madman, to be themselves followed by others as wild. During the whole performance Levin experienced a feeling analogous to what a deaf man might have in looking at dancers. He was in a state of utter dubiety when the piece came to an end, and he felt a great weariness from the strain of intellectual intensity which was never rewarded. On all sides were heard loud applause and clapping of hands. All got up and moved about, talking. Wishing to get some light on his doubts by the impressions of others, Levin began to walk about, seeking for the connoisseurs, and he was glad when at last he saw one of the best-known musical critics talking with his friend Pestov. "'It's wonderful,' said Pestov, in his deep bass. "'How are you, Konstantin Dmitrich? "'The passage that is the richest in colour, the most statuesque, so to speak, "'is that where Cordelia appears, where woman, das ewig weibliche, "'comes into conflict with fate. "'Don't you think so?' "'Why Cordelia?' asked Levin, with hesitation, "'for he had wholly forgotten that the symphonic poem "'had anything to do with King Lear.' "'Cordelia appears here,' said Pestov, tapping with his finger on the satin program which he held in his hand. Then only did Levin notice the title of the symphonic poem, and he made haste to read the text of Shakespeare, translated into Russian and printed on the back of the program. "'You can't follow it without that,' said Pestov, addressing Levin, now that his friend, the critic, had gone, and there was nothing more to talk with him about.' Levin and Pestov spent the intermission in discussing the merits and defects of the Wagnerian tendencies in music. Levin maintained that the mistake of Wagner and all his followers consisted in transferring music to the domain of an alien art, that poetry made the mistake when it tried to depict the features of the human face, which was the province of painting to do, and as a concrete example of this kind of a mistake he adduced the sculptor, who should try to express in marble the shades of poetic imagery rising round the figure of the poet on the pedestal. These shades are so far from being shades in the case of the sculptor, that they even rest on the steps, said Levin. This phrase pleased him, but he had a lurking suspicion that he had once used the same phrase before, 
and to Pestov himself, and he felt confused. Pestov argued that art is one, and that it can reach its loftiest manifestations only by combining all its forms. Levin could not listen to the second number on the program. Pestov, who was standing near him, kept talking to him most of the time, criticizing it for its excessive, mawkish, affected simplicity, and comparing it to the simplicity of the pre-Raphaelites in painting. On his way out, he met various acquaintances, with whom he exchanged remarks on politics, music, and other topics. Among others he saw Count Bol, and the call which he should have made on him came to mind. "'Well, go quickly,' said Natalie, to whom he confided this. "'Perhaps the Countess is not receiving. If so, you will come and join me at the meeting. You have plenty of time.'" End of chapter 5 Part 7, Chapter 6 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Perhaps they are not receiving, asked Levin, as he entered the vestibule of Count Bol's house. Oh, yes, permit me, answered the Swiss, resolutely taking the visitor's shuba. What a nuisance, thought Levin, drawing off one of his gloves with a sigh and turning his hat in his hands. Now, why did I come? Now, what am I going to say to them? Passing through the first drawing-room, he met the Countess Bol at the door, who, with a perplexed and severe face, was giving orders to a servant. When she saw Levin, she smiled, and invited him to walk into a small parlour, where voices were heard. In this room were sitting her two daughters, and a Muscovite colonel whom Levin knew. Levin joined them, passed the usual compliments, and sat down near a divan, holding his hat on his knee. "'How is your wife? Have you been to the concert? We were not able to go. Mamma had to attend to the requiem,' said one of the young ladies. "'Yes, I heard about it. What a sudden death,' said Levin. The countess came in, sat down on the divan, and asked also about his wife and the concert. Levin replied, and asked some questions about the sudden death of Madame Apraxin. But then, she was always in delicate health. Were you at the opera yesterday? Yes, I was. Lucha was very good. Yes, very good, said he, and he began, seeing that it was entirely immaterial to him what they thought about him, to repeat what he had heard a hundred times about the singer's extraordinary talent. The Countess Bowl pretended that she was listening. Then, when he had said all he had to say, and relapsed into silence, the colonel, who had hitherto held his peace, began also to speak. The colonel also talked about the opera, and about an illumination. Then, saying something about a supposititious fulgournee at Turin, the colonel, laughing, got up and took his departure. Levin also got up, but a look of surprise on the countess's face told him that it was not yet time for him to go, Two minutes more, at least, were necessary. He sat down. But, as he thought what a foolish figure he was cutting, he was more and more incapable of finding a subject of conversation. "'Are you going to the public meeting?' asked the Countess. "'They say it will be very interesting.' "'No. But I promised my belsoir that I would call for her there,' replied Levin. Silence again ensued. The mother exchanged a look with her daughter." Now it must be time to go, thought Levin, and he rose. 
The lady shook hands with him, and charged him with mille choses for his wife. The Swiss, as he put on his shuba for him, asked his address, and wrote it gravely in a large, handsomely bound book. "'Of course, it's always the same to me, but how useless and ridiculous it all is,' thought Levin, comforting himself with the thought that everyone did the same thing. Then he went to the public meeting of the committee, where he was to find his sister-in-law to bring her home with him. At the public meeting of the committee there was a great throng of people, and society was well represented. Levin reached the place just in time to hear a sketch which all said was very interesting. When the reading of the sketch was finished, society came together, and Levin met Sviatsky, who invited him to come that very evening to a meeting of the Society of Rural Economy, at which a very important report was to be read. He also met Stefan Arkadyevitch, who had just returned from the races, and many other acquaintances, and Levin talked much and heard many opinions relating to the meeting and the new piece and the lawsuit. But apparently in consequence of his weariness and the strain which he began to feel, he made a blunder in speaking of a certain lawsuit, and this blunder he afterward remembered with annoyance. Speaking of the recent punishment of a foreigner who had been tried in Russia, and that it would have been irregular to punish him by exile, Levin repeated what he had heard the evening before in a conversation with a friend of his. "'I think that to send him abroad is just the same as to punish a fish by throwing it into the water,' said Levin. Too late he remembered that his comparison which he put forth to express his thought, though he had heard his friend use it, was really taken from a fable by Krulov, and that his friend had taken it from the feuilleton of a newspaper. Returning home with his sister-in-law, and finding Kitty well and happy, Eleven went to the club. End of chapter 6Part seven, chapter seven of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. The Slipperbox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Levin reached the club very punctually. A number of the guests and members arrived there at the same time as he did. Levin had not been at the club very recently, indeed, not since the time when, having finished his studies at the university he passed a winter at Moscow and went into society. He remembered the club in a general sort of way, but had entirely forgotten the impressions which, in former days, it had made upon him. But as soon as he entered the great semicircular dvor, or court, sent away his svazchik, and mounted the steps and saw the liveried Swiss noiselessly open the door for him, and bow as he ushered him in. As soon as he saw in the cloak-room the galoshes and shubas of the members, who felt that it was less work to take them off downstairs, and leave them with the Swiss, than to wear them upstairs, as soon as he heard the well-known mysterious sound of the bell, and as soon as he mounted the easy flight of carpeted stairs, and saw the statue on the landing, and on the upper floor recognized the third Swiss in his club livery, who, having grown older, displayed neither dilatoriousness nor haste in opening the door for him, he once more felt the old-time impression of the club, the atmosphere of comfort, ease, and good breeding. "'Your hat, if you please,' said the Swiss to Levin, who had forgotten the rule of the club to leave hats at the cloakroom. "'It's a long time since you were here,' said the Swiss. "'The prince wrote to you yesterday. Prince Stefan Arkadyevitch has not come yet.' The Swiss knew not only Levin, but all his connections and family, and took pleasure in reminding him of his relationships. Passing through the first connecting hall, 
and the conversation-room at the right, where the fruit-dealer sits, Levin, who walked faster than the old attendant, entered the dining-room, which was filled with a noisy throng. He made his way along by the tables, almost all of which were occupied. As he looked about him on all sides, he saw men of the most heterogeneous types, old and young, most of them acquaintances, and many of them friends. It seemed as if all of them had left their cares and worries with their hats in the cloak-room, and had collected together to make the most of the material advantages of life. There were Sviatsky and Sherbatsky, and Nevyadovsky, and the old prince, and Vronsky, and Sergey Ivanovitch. "'Ah, why are you late?' said the prince, with a smile, extending his hand to his son-in-law over his shoulder. "'How is Kitty?' he added, putting a corner of his napkin into the buttonhole of his waistcoat. "'She is well, and dining with her sisters. "'Ah, the old gossips! "'Well, there's no room with us. "'Go to that table there, and get a seat as quickly as you can,' said the prince, "'taking care with a plate of uka, or soup made of loats. "'Here, Levin!' cried a jovial voice, from a table a little farther away. "'It was Trofsuin. "'He was sitting with a young officer, and near him were two chairs tilted up. "'Levin, with joy, went to join him.' He always liked the good-hearted, prodigal Trotsuin. His reconciliation with Kitty was connected with him, and now, especially, after all his wearisome intellectual conversations, the sight of his jolly face was delightful. "'These places were for you and Blonsky. He will be here directly,' said Trotsuin. And then he introduced Levin to the young officer, who held himself very straight and had bright, laughing eyes. Gagin, from Petersburg. Oblonsky is always late. Ah, here he is. You've only just come, haven't you? asked Oblonsky of Levin, hurrying up to him. Your health. Will you take vodka? Come on, then. Levin got up and went with him to a large table, on which all kinds of liquors and a most select zakuska were set out. It would seem as if the two dozen different kinds of drinks might have offered a choice, but Stefan Arkadyevitch thought good to ask for a special concoction which a servant in livery hastened to get for him. They drank it from small glasses, and then returned to their places. At the very first, even while they were eating their uka, Gagin had champagne served, and he ordered the four glasses filled. Levin did not refuse the wine when it was offered to him, and he in turn ordered a bottle. He was hungry, and ate and drank with great satisfaction, and with still greater satisfaction took part in the gay and lively conversation of his neighbors. Gagin, lowering his voice, told a new Petersburg anecdote, and, though it was indecorous and ridiculous, it was so funny that Levin laughed uproariously till those around him looked at him in surprise. "'That is in the same kind as, alas, I cannot endure it,' quoted Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Do you remember? Ah, oh, it was lovely. Bring us another bottle,' said he to the lackey, and he began to tell an anecdote. Pyotr Ilyich Vinovsky sends these, interrupted a little old lackey, addressing Stefan Arkadyevitch, and bringing two diminutive glasses of bubbling champagne, and offering them to Oblonsky and Levin. Stefan Arkadyevitch took the glass, and, exchanging glances with a bald, ruddy, mustachioed man at the other end of the table, nodded to him and smiled. "'Who is that?' asked Levin. "'You met him at my house once. Don't you remember? He's a very good fellow.' Levin followed Oblonsky's example, and took his glass. Stefan Arkadyevitch's anecdote was also very diverting. 
Then Levin had a story to tell, and it likewise raised a laugh. Then the conversation turned on horses, and the races that had taken place that day, and they told how brilliantly Vronsky's trotter, Atlas Nui, had won the first prize. "'Ah, here they are,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, toward the end of the dinner, turning round in his chair to extend his hand to Vronsky, who was walking with a tall colonel of the guards. Vronsky's face was also radiant with the good-natured gaiety that reigned in the club. He leaned his elbow on Oblonsky's shoulder and whispered some words in his ear with an air of good humor, and extended his hand with a friendly smile to Levin. "'I'm very glad to meet you,' said he. "'I looked for you after the elections, but they told me you had gone.' "'Yes. I went away the same day. We have just been speaking of your trotter. It was a very fast race.' "'Yes, it was. Haven't you race horses too?' "'I? No.' My father had horses, and I know about them. "'Where did you dine?' asked Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'At the second table, behind the columns.' "'He has been loaded down with congratulations. It's very pretty. A second imperial prize. I wish I could only have the same luck at play as he does with horses. Now, how they waste golden time. I am going to the infernal Neya,' said the tall colonel, and he left them. "'That's Yashvin,' said Vronsky to Trotsuin and sat down in a vacant place near them. Having drained the glass of champagne which was filled for him, he also ordered a bottle. Either from the effect of the wine which he had drunk, or from the social atmosphere of the club, Levin talked cordially with him about the best breeds of cattle, and was happy to feel no more hatred against his former rival. He even told him, among other things, that he had heard from his wife of the meeting which had taken place at the house of the Princess Maria Beresovna. Ah! the Princess Maria Beresovna. She's a charmer, exclaimed Stefan Arkadyevitch, and he told an anecdote of the old lady which made everyone laugh. Especially Vronsky laughed so heartily that Levin felt perfectly reconciled to him. Well, gentlemen, have we finished? said Oblonsky, getting up and smiling. Then let us go. End of chapter 7《パート7》Chapter 8 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. On leaving the table, Levin, in company with Gagin, walked through the lofty rooms to the billiard room, and he felt that his walk was singularly straight, and that his hands moved easily. In the large hall, he met his father-in-law. Well, and how do you like our temple of indolence? asked the old prince, taking his son-in-law by the arm. "'Come, take a turn.' "'I should like to look around. It is interesting.' "'Yes, to you. But my interest in it is different from yours. When you see old men like that,' said he, indicating a member of the club who, with stooping shoulders and falling lip, was slowly shuffling along in soft boots across the hall, "'you would think that they were born schlupiks.' "'Why do you call them little sloops?' Here you are, and don't know what that means. That's our club term. You know how eggs roll. Well, when anyone goes with a gait like that, he becomes a schlupik. And so, when any one of us goes stumbling through the club, he becomes a schlupik. You laugh, do you? But one has to look out, else he finds himself one. Do you know Prince Chechensky? he asked, and Levin saw by his face that he was going to tell some ridiculous yarn. No. I don't know him. Well, no matter. Prince Chechensky is famous. Well, 
That is neither here nor there. He's always playing billiards. Three years ago he wasn't among the Shalupics, but was a great galliard. He himself called other people Shalupics. Only he came one time. But our Swiss, you know, Vasily, our tall one, he is a great bomotist. Prince Chetensky asked him, Well, Vasily, is anyone here yet? Have any Shalupics come? And Vasily answers, You are the third. Now, brother, how is that? The two men walked on, chatting and greeting their friends, and passed through all the rooms. The main room, where men accustomed to one another as partners were playing cards for small stakes. The divan room, where others were having games of chess, and Sergey Ivanovitch was talking with someone. The billiard room, where in the bay of the room, around a divan, a gay party, among them Gagin, had gathered and were drinking champagne. They glanced in also at the infernal Naya, where, at the gambling table, Yashvin, surrounded by men betting, was already established. With hushed voices they entered the reading room, where, under a shaded lamp, a young man with a stern face was turning over the leaves of one journal after another, while nearby was a bald-headed general absorbed in reading. They passed quietly into a room which the prince called the Hall of the Wits, and there they found three gentlemen talking politics. A prince, we are ready, if you please, said one of his partners, finding him there, and the prince joined them. Eleven sat down and listened to the three gentlemen, but, as he recalled all the conversations of the same kind he had heard since morning, he felt excessively bored. He got up and went off to find Turopsuin and Oblonsky, who were sure to be gay. Turopsuin was with the champagne drinkers on the high divan in the billiard room, and Stefan Arkadyevitch and Vronsky were talking in a corner near the door. Not that she finds it tedious, Levin heard in passing, but it's the uncertainty, the indefiniteness of her position. He was about to pass on discreetly, but Stefan Arkadyevitch called him. Levin, said he, and Levin saw that there were in his eyes not exactly tears, but moisture, as was always the case, either after he had been drinking or when he was touched, and just now it was both. Eleven, don't go, and he took him by the arm and detained him. Here is my sincere, if not my best, friend, said he, addressing Vronsky. You, too, are more like a kinsman than a friend to me. I want to bring you together and see you friends. You ought to be good friends, because you are both good men. There's nothing left for us but to give the kiss of friendship, said Vronsky gaily, offering his hand to Levin, who pressed it cordially. I'm very... "'Very glad,' said Levin. "'A waiter, a bottle of champagne,' cried Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'I am also very glad,' said Vronsky. But in spite of Oblonsky's desires and their mutual satisfaction, they had nothing to say, and both knew it. "'Do you know, he doesn't know Anna,' remarked Oblonsky, "'and I want to introduce him to her. Come on, Levin.' "'Is it possible?' said Vronsky. "'She will be very much pleased. I should beg you to come at once.' "'But I am troubled about Yashvin, and I want to stay here till he has finished playing.' "'Is he going to lose?' "'All he has. I am the only one who has any influence over him,' said Vronsky. "'What do you say, Levin? Shall we have a game of pool? First rate,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Place the pyramid,' he said, addressing the marker. "'It is all ready,' replied the marker, who had some time before put the balls in the triangular frame, and had placed the red ball in readiness to break the pyramid.' "'Well, then, go ahead.' After their game, Vronsky and Levin sat down at Gagin's table, 
and Levin, at Stefan Arkadyevitch's instance, began to bet on the aces. Vronsky sat down for a time at the same table, where his acquaintances kept coming up and joining him. Then, after a time, he went to the infernal Naya to find out how Yashvin was getting along. Levin felt a pleasant sense of exhilaration after the intellectual weariness of the morning. He was pleased to have his unfriendly feelings toward Vronsky ended, and the impression of restfulness, good fellowship, and comfort still remained by him. When the game was ended, Stefan Arkadyevitch took Levin's arm, saying, "'Well, let us go see Anna. We needn't wait for Vronsky. What say you? She is at home. I promised her to bring you a long time ago. Where were you going this evening?' "'Nowhere in particular. I only told Sviatsky I would go to the Society of Rural Economy. But I'll go with you, if you wish.' "'Excellent. Let's go, then. See if my carriage has come,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, addressing a lackey. Levin went to the desk, paid the forty roubles which he had lost at cards, in some mysterious way gave his fee to the old lackey who was standing by the door, and went through the long rooms down to the entrance. End of chapter 8Part Seven, Chapter Nine of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Oblonsky's carriage! cried the Swiss in a portentous voice. The carriage came up, and the two friends got in. Only as long as the carriage was still in the courtyard did Levin continue to experience the feeling of clubbish comfort, of satisfaction, and of indubitable decorum which had surrounded him. But as soon as the carriage rolled out on the street, the jolting over the uneven pavement, the cries of an angry Isvostchek whom they met, and the sight of the red sign of a low public-house and some shops lighted up, caused this impression to fade away, and he began to think over what follies he had committed, and to ask himself if he were doing right in going to see Anna. What would Kitty say? Stefan Arkadyevitch, as if he had divined what was passing in the mind of his companion, cut short his meditations. "'How glad I am,' said he, "'that you are going to know her. Do you know Dolly has been wishing it for a long time? Lvov goes to her house, too. Though she is my sister,' continued Stefan Arkadyevitch, "'I am bold enough to say that she is a remarkable woman. You will see it. Her position is very hard, especially just now.' "'Why do you say especially now?' "'We are negotiating with her husband for a divorce, and he is willing.' but there are difficulties on account of the sun, and this matter, which ought to have been settled long ago, is dragging on now these three months. As soon as the divorce is granted, she will marry Vronsky. How stupid it is, this old habit of dizziness, Isaiah rejoice, in which no one believes, and which destroys the happiness of people, exclaimed Stefan Arkadyevitch, interrupting what he was saying. Then he went on, and then her position will become as regular as yours or mine. Where does the difficulty lie? Ugh, it is a long and tiresome story. Everything is so undecided. But this is the point. She has been waiting three months for that divorce here in Moscow, where everybody knows her and him, and she doesn't see a single woman but Dolly, because, don't you see, she doesn't wish that anyone should come to see her from pity. What do you think? That fool of a Princess Vivara left her because she considered it irregular. Any other woman than Anna would not have found resources in herself. But you shall see how she lives, how dignified and calm she is. 
to the left at the corner opposite the church cried oblonsky to the coachman leaning out of the window foo how hot it is he added throwing open his shuba in spite of twelve degrees of cold well she has a daughter hasn't she to take up her time and attention you seem to imagine every woman to be only a setting hen un convince said stepan arkadyevitch why yes of course she gives her time and attention to her daughter but she doesn't make any fuss about it she's occupied mainly with her writing i see you smile ironically but you are wrong she has written a book for young people she hasn't spoken of it to anyone except me and i showed the manuscript of orkoyev the publisher you know he is a writer himself it seems he is up in such matters and he says that it is a remarkable thing do you think that she sets up for a blue stocking not at all anna is above all things a woman with a heart as you will see she has in her house a little english girl and a whole family and is looking after them what some philanthropical scheme here you are immediately trying to turn it into something absurd it is not for philanthropy's sake but because she loves to do it they had that is vronsky had an english trainer a master in his calling but a drunkard he did nothing but drink delirium tremens and abandoned his family anna saw them helped them got drawn in more and more and now has the whole family on her hands i don't mean merely by giving them money she herself teaches the boys russian so as to fit them for the gymnasium and she has taken the little girl home with her well you shall see her at this moment the carriage entered a courtyard stepan arkadyevitch rang at the door before which they stopped and without inquiring whether the mistress of the house was at home went into the vestibule levin followed him more and more uneasy as to the propriety of the step he was taking he saw as he looked at himself in the glass that he was very red in the face but he knew that this was not tipsy he went upon the carpeted stairs after oblonsky on the second floor a servant received them with a bow and stepan arkadyevitch as if he were a connection asked him who is with anna arkadyevna and received the answer mr vorkoyev where are they in the library they passed through a small wainscoted dining-room and walking along on the thick carpet they came to the library dimly lighted by a single lamp with a huge shade a reflector lamp on the wall threw its full rays on a full-length portrait of a woman which instantly attracted levin's attention while stepan arkadyevitch went on and the man's voice which had been heard ceased speaking levin stood looking at the portrait which shone down from its frame and he could not tear himself away he forgot where he was and not hearing what was said he kept his eyes fixed on the wonderful portrait it was not a painting but a living beautiful woman with her dark curling hair bare shoulders and arms and a pensive half-smile on her lovely lips and gazing at him triumphantly and yet tenderly from her entrancing eyes only because it was not alive did it not seem more beautiful than life itself ja ochtin rede i am very glad a voice said suddenly behind him evidently addressed to him the voice of the same woman whom he admired in the picture it was anna who had been concealed by a lattice-work of climbing plants and who rose to receive her visitor and in the dark of the library levin recognized the original of the portrait in a simple dark blue gown not in the same position not with the same expression 
but with the same lofty beauty which had been represented by the artist in the painting. She was less brilliant in the reality, but the living woman had a new attraction which the portrait lacked. End of chapter 9 Part 7, Chapter 10 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. She advanced to meet him, and did not conceal the pleasure which his visit caused her. With the ease and simplicity which Levin recognized as characteristic of a woman of the best society, she extended to him a small, energetic hand, introduced him to Vorkoyev, and called his attention to a light-complexioned and pretty little girl, her pupil, she said, who was seated with her work near the table. "'I am very, very glad,' she repeated, and in these simple words, spoken by her, Levin found an extraordinary significance. "'I have known you and liked you for ever so long, both because of your friendship with Steva and because of your wife. I knew her a very short time, but she gave me the impression of a flower, a lovely flower.' and to think she will soon be a mother. She talked freely and without haste, occasionally looking from Levin to her brother, and Levin was conscious that the impression which he had produced was excellent, and he immediately felt perfectly at his ease with her, and on the simplest and most friendly terms, as if he had known her from childhood. To Oblonsky, who asked if smoking was allowed, she replied, That is why we have taken refuge in Alexey's study, and, looking at Levin, Instead of asking, Do you smoke? she held over a tortoise shell cigar case to him and took a cigarette herself. How are you today? asked her brother. Pretty well, a little nervous, as usual. Isn't it extraordinarily good? said Stefan Arkadyevitch, noticing Levin's admiration of the portrait. I never saw a better portrait. An extraordinary likeness, isn't it? added Vorkoyev. Levin looked from the portrait to the original. Anna's face lighted up with a peculiar glow as she felt conscious of his eyes resting on her. He blushed, and, to conceal his confusion, was just going to ask her when she had seen Darya Alexandrovna. But at that instant Anna said, "'Ivan Petrovitch and I were talking just now of Vestchenkov's pictures. Do you know them?' "'Yes, I have seen them,' answered Levin. "'But I beg your pardon. You were just going to ask me something?' Levin asked whether she had seen Dolly lately. She was here yesterday. She was indignant at what happened to Grisha at the gymnasium. It seems his Latin teacher was unfair to him. Yes, I saw the pictures. They pleased me very much, said Levin, returning to the topic which they had begun to talk about. What Levin now said was entirely free from the technical formality with which he had talked in the morning. Every word of the conversation with her seemed to be significant, and pleasant as it was to talk with her, it was still pleasanter to listen to her. Anna talked not only naturally and intelligently, but, though intelligently, still without pretense, not arrogating any great importance to her own thoughts, but attributing great importance to what her friends said. The conversation turned on the new tendencies of art, and on some of the illustrations to the Bible which a French artist had recently made. Vorkoyev severely criticized the realism which the artist carried to brutality. Levin remarked that the French had carried conventionality in art to greater lengths than any other people, and that, therefore, they found a special merit in the reaction toward realism. 
they discovered poetry in the fact that they no longer lied. Never had Levin said a clever thing which gave him anything like the pleasure that this did. Anna's face grew suddenly bright, as the full force of his remark dawned on her. She laughed. "'I am delighted,' she said, "'just as you are when you see a very lifelike portrait. What you said is characteristic of all French art at the present time, painting, and even literature, Zola, Daudet, but possibly this is always the way that men form their conceptions from imagery, conventional figures, but afterwards, all the combinations made, the imaginary figures weary, and people begin to invent more natural and truthful figures. That is perfectly true, said Brokoyev. Have you been to the club? asked Anna, turning to her brother. Yes. Yes, here is a genuine woman, said Levin to himself, forgetting himself and gazing steadily into her handsome, mobile face, which now suddenly changed its expression. Levin did not hear what she was talking about as she bent over toward her brother, but he was struck by the change in her expression. Beautiful as it had been before in repose, it now suddenly assumed a mixed expression of curiosity, wrath, and pride. But this lasted only for one minute. She half closed her eyes, as if she were trying to remember something. However, this is interesting to no one, said she, and she addressed the English girl in English. Please order the tea in the drawing-room. The girl rose and went out. Well, has she passed the examination? asked Stefan Arkadyevitch. Perfectly. She is a very capable girl, and a lovely character. You will end by loving her better than your own daughter. That is just like a man. In love there is no such a thing as more or less. I love my daughter in one way, and this girl in another. I tell Anna Arkadyevna, said Vorkoyev, that if she would spend a hundredth part of the activity she devotes to this little English girl for the benefit of Russian children, what a service her energy would render. She would accomplish prodigies. Now there, what you want I can't do. Count Alexey Kirillovich, she glanced with an air of timid inquiry at Levin, as she pronounced this name, and he involuntarily responded by a look which was encouraging and full of admiration. He used to encourage me, when we were in the country, to visit the schools. I went a few times. They were very pleasant, but I couldn't get interested in this occupation. You talk of energy, but the foundation of energy is love, and love does not come at will. So I love this little English girl, but I really don't know why. She looked at Levin again, and her smile and her look all told him that she spoke only with the aim of gaining his approval though sure in advance that they understood each other. "'I agree with you thoroughly,' cried he. "'You can't put your heart into schools and such things, and I think that from the same reason philanthropic institutions generally give such small results.' She was silent for a moment, then she smiled. "'Yes, yes,' she replied. "'I never could. Je ne pas le cours assise large to love a whole asylum of wretched little girls.' Women do it only to win for themselves position sociale. Even now, when I have so much need of occupation, she added, with a sad, confiding expression, addressing Levin, though she was speaking to her brother, even now I cannot. Then suddenly frowning, and Levin saw that she frowned because she had begun to speak of herself, she changed the subject. I know about you, she said, smiling at Levin. You have the reputation of being only an indifferent citizen, 
but I have always defended you as well as I could. How have you defended me? That depends on the attacks. But suppose we have some tea, said she. She rose and took a Morocco-bound book which was lying on the table. Give it to me, Anna Arkadyevna, said Vorkoyev, pointing to the book. It is well worth while. No, it is all so unfinished. I have told him about it, remarked Stefan Arkadyevitch, indicating Levin. You were wrong. My writings are like those little baskets and carvings made by prisoners, which Liza Meyertsalova used to sell. She managed the prisons for our society, said she, turning to Levin. Those unfortunates used to do perfect miracles of patience. Levin was struck by still a new feature in this remarkable, fascinating woman. Besides wit, grace, beauty, she had sincerity. She did not wish to conceal the thorns of her situation. As she said that, she sighed, and her face suddenly assumed a stern expression, as if it were changed to stone. With this expression on her face, she was even more beautiful than before. But that expression was new. It was entirely alien to that which a few minutes before had seemed to irradiate happiness, and which the artist had managed to reproduce in the portrait. Levin looked once more at the portrait, and at the original of it, while Anna took her brother's arm, and a feeling of tenderness and pity came over him, surprising even himself. She let the two gentlemen pass into the parlour, and remained behind to speak to Steva. "'What is she talking with him about? The divorce? Vronsky? What he was doing at the club? About me?' thought Levin, and he was so stirred that he heard nothing that Vorkoyev was saying to him about the merits of the story for children which Anna Arkadyevna had written. During tea, a pleasant conversation full of ideas was carried on. There seemed to be no lack of subjects at any moment, but it was felt that there was time to say all that any one wanted to say, and each was willing to listen when the other talked. And all that was said, not only by Anna herself, but by Vorkoyev and by Stefan Arkadyevitch, had a special significance, thanks to her interested attention and her pertinent remarks. So, at least, it seemed to Levin. All the time they were talking, Levin studied her, and admired her beauty and the cultivation of her mind, and not less her perfect simplicity and naturalness. He listened and talked, and all the time thought about her and her inner life, and tried to penetrate her feelings, and he, who had formerly criticized her so severely, now by some strange train of thought, justified her and pitied her, and confessed to himself the fear that Vronsky did not wholly understand her. It was more than eleven o'clock when Stepan Arkadyevitch rose to go. Rokoyev had already left some time before. Levin rose, too, but with regret. He felt as if he had only just come. Prasciate, farewell,' said Anna to him, holding his hand in hers, and looking into his eyes with a fascinating look. "'I am glad que la glance est rompue.' She let go his hand, and her eyes twinkled. Tell your wife that I love her, as I have always done, and, if she cannot forgive me my position, tell her how I hope she may never pardon me, for to pardon it is necessary to understand what I have suffered, and God preserve her from that. Yes, I will surely tell her, answered Levin, and the color came into his face. End of chapter 10
Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. What a wonderful, lovely, and pitiable woman, thought Levin, as he went out with Stefan Arkadyevitch into the cold night air. There, what did I tell you? demanded Oblonsky, as he saw that Levin was perfectly overcome. Wasn't I right? Yes, answered Levin thoughtfully. An extraordinary woman. Not only intellectual, but she has a wonderfully warm heart. What a terrible pity it is about her. Now, thank God, all will soon be arranged, I hope. Well, after this, don't form hasty judgments, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, opening his carriage door. Prochai, farewell. We go different ways. Levin went home, never ceasing to think about Anna, recalling the smallest incidents of the evening, bringing back all the charm of her face, and understanding her situation better and better, and, at the same time, feeling the deepest commiseration for her. When he reached his house, Kuzma told Levin that Katerina Alexandrovna was well, and that her sisters had but just left her. He handed him at the same time two letters. Levin, as he stood in the vestibule, ran through them at once so as not to be distracted afterward. One was from his superintendent, Sokolov. Sokolov wrote that he had not found a purchaser who would give more than five and a half roubles for the wheat, and that he could not raise money elsewhere. The other letter was from his sister. She reproached him because her affairs were not yet regulated. "'Well, we'll sell for five roubles and a half, if they won't give more,' thought he, settling with extraordinary promptness the first question which had been troubling him. "'It is wonderful how the time here is occupied,' he said to himself, thinking of the second letter. He felt that he was to blame toward his sister, because he had not yet accomplished what she had asked him to do for her. "'Today I did not get to court either, but I did not have a moment's time.' and, making up his mind that he would surely go the next day, he went to his wife's room. On his way he cast a quick glance back at his day. There had been nothing except conversations, conversations in which he had listened, and in which he had taken part. Not one of the subjects touched on what would have occupied him when in the country, but here they were very interesting, and all the conversations in which he had engaged were good, only in two places were they not absolutely good. One was his remark about the fish at the club, the other was something intangibly wrong in his feelings of tender pity for Anna. Levin found his wife sad and absent-minded. The dinner of the three sisters had been merry, but afterward they had waited and waited for him, and the evening had seemed long to them, and now Kitty was alone. "'Well, what have you been doing?' she asked him, looking at him, as she did so, with a suspicious light in her eyes, but she took good care to conceal her intentions, so as not to prevent him from telling her the whole story, and with an encouraging smile she listened as he told her how he had spent the evening. "'Well, I met Vronsky at the club, and I am very glad of it. I felt very much at my ease with him, and enjoyed it. Of course, I shall try to avoid him, but still henceforth I shan't feel that awkwardness in his society.' As he said these words he remembered that in order not to avoid him, he had immediately gone to Anna's house, and his face grew red. Here we say the peasantry drink, but I don't know which drink more, the peasantry or men in society. The peasantry drink on festival days, but— Kitty was not interested in the question of how much the peasantry drink. She saw her husband's face glow red, and she wanted to know the reason. Well, 
Where else did you go? Steva insisted on my going with him to Anna Arkadyevna's, answered he, blushing more and more, and his doubts as to the propriety of his visit to Anna were decided for him. He now knew that he ought not to have done so. Kitty's eyes opened wide and flashed at the mention of Anna, but she restrained herself, and, concealing her emotion, she misled him. She merely said, Ah! You are not going to be vexed with me because I went. Steva begged me to go, and Dolly wanted me to. Oh, no, said she, but in her eyes he saw a look which boded little good. She is a very charming woman, who is very much to be pitied, a good woman, continued Levin, and he described the life which Anna led, and gave her message of remembrance to Kitty. Yes, of course she is to be pitied, said Kitty, when he had finished. Whom did you get a letter from? He told her, and, misled by her apparent calmness, went to undress. When he came back he found Kitty in the same armchair. When he approached, she looked at him and burst into tears. "'What is it? What's the matter?' he asked with some annoyance, for he understood the cause of her tears. "'You are in love with that horrid woman. She's bewitched you. I saw it in your eyes. Yes. Yes. What will be the end of it? You were at the club. You drank too much. You gambled, and then you went. Where? No, this shall not go on. We must leave. I'm going home to-morrow.' It was long before Levin could pacify his wife, and when at last he succeeded, it was only by acknowledging that his feeling of pity for Anna, together with the wine, had clouded his brain, and that he had fallen under her seductive influence, and by promising that he would avoid her. What he acknowledged with more sincerity was the ill effect produced on him by this idle life in Moscow, passed in eating, drinking, and gossiping. They talked till three o'clock in the morning. Only when it was three o'clock were they sufficiently reconciled to go to sleep. End of chapter 11Part seven, chapter twelve of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. After having said good-bye to her visitors, without sitting down, Anna began to walk up and down the full length of her apartments. Of late, she had got into the habit of unconsciously doing all she could to attract young men to her and so this whole evening she had striven to awaken a feeling of love in Levin. But though she knew that she had succeeded in doing this as far as it was possible with a chaste married man, and though he pleased her very much, and in spite of the sharply defined dissimilarities between Vronsky and Levin, she as a woman was able to detect the subtle likeness between them, which had caused Kitty to be in love with them both. Yet as soon as he had left the room, she ceased to think about him. One thought— and one only, in various guises, followed her. Why, since I have so evidently an attraction for others, for this married man who is in love with his wife, why is he so cold to me? Yet not exactly cold. He loves me, I know. But lately something new has come between us. Why has he spent the whole evening away? He told Steva that he could not leave Yashvin, but had to watch him while he played. Is Yashvin a baby? It must be true. He never tells lies. But there is something else back of it. He is glad of the chance to show me that he has other duties. 
I know this. I don't object to it, but what need has he to assert it so? He wants to show that his love for me must not interfere with his independence. But the proof is not necessary. I must have his love. He ought to understand the wretchedness of the life I lead here in Moscow. Why am I living? I am not living, only dragging out life, in hope of a turn in affairs, which never, never comes. And Steva says that he can't go to Alexey Alexandrovitch. And I can't write again. I cannot do anything. I can't begin anything. Or make any changes, but only control myself wait, and invent amusements. This English family, my reading, my writing. But it is all only to deceive myself, like this morphine. He ought to be sorry for me, she said, feeling how the tears of pity at her own lot filled her eyes. She heard the doorbell Vronsky rang violently, and instantly she wiped away her tears, not only wiped away the tears, but sat down near the lamp with a book, and pretended to be calm. She felt that she must show her dissatisfaction because he had not returned as he had promised, but not to let her grief be seen. She might pity herself, but Vronsky must not be allowed to pity her. She did not want a contest. She blamed him because he wanted to quarrel, but she herself involuntarily took the attitude of an opponent. "'Well, you weren't lonely, were you?' said he, briskly and cheerfully, as he came toward her. "'What a terrible passion gambling is!' "'No,' I was not lonely. I long ago learned not to be lonely. Steva and Levin have been here to see me. Yes, I knew that they intended to come. Well, and how do you like Levin? he asked, as he sat down near her. Very much. They have only just gone. How about Yashvin? He had won seventeen thousand roubles. I got him away, but he escaped from me and went back again, and now he's losing. But why did you abandon him? said Anna, suddenly raising her eyes to his. The expression of her face was cold and unpleasant. You told Steva that you were going to stay, to bring him away, and now you abandon him? In the first place, I did not send any message to you. In the second place, I never tell lies, and chiefly I wished to stay, and I stayed, he answered angrily. Anna, why, why do you do so? added he, after a moment's silence holding out his hand to her, in the hope that she would place hers in it. She was glad of this appeal to her love, but some strange spirit of evil prevented her from yielding. "'Of course you stayed because you wanted to. You always do as you please. But why tell me so? What is the good?' answered she, growing more and more heated. "'Who denies that you tell the truth? You wish to justify yourself. Do so, then.' Vronsky drew back his hand, and his face became more set than before. "'For you, this is a matter of obstinacy,' she cried, looking at him fixedly, and suddenly finding the term by which to call the expression of his face, which exasperated her. "'Sheer obstinacy. For you, the question is to see whether you will win the victory over me. But the question for me—and again the sense of her pitiable lot came over her, and she almost sobbed. If you knew what it meant for me when I feel, as I do now, that you hate me. Yes, hate me. If you knew what it meant for me. If you knew how near I am to horrible misfortune at these moments. How I fear. 
how I fear for myself! And she turned away to hide her sobs. But what's all this for? said Vronsky, alarmed at this despair, and leaning toward Anna to take her hand and kiss it. Do I seek outside diversion? Don't I avoid the society of women? As if that were all, said she. Well, tell me what I must do to make you content. I am ready to do anything that you may be happy, said he, moved to see her in such despair. What would I not do to spare you such grief, Anna? he said. It's nothing, nothing, she replied. I myself don't know. It's the loneliness. It's my nerves. There, let's not talk about it any more. Tell me what happened at the races. Why haven't you told me about it? she asked, attempting to conceal the pride she felt at her victory, for she knew it rested with her. Vronsky asked for some supper, and as he was eating described to her the incidents of the races. But from the sound of his voice, and from his glance that grew colder and colder, she saw that he would not forgive her for the victory, that the sense of obstinacy which she had struggled to overcome was as firm in him as ever. He was colder toward her than before, as if he regretted having yielded to her, and as she remembered the words that won her the victory, especially the words, "'How near I am to horrible misfortune, and I fear for myself,' she realized that it was a dangerous weapon, and that she must never employ it again. But she felt that along with the love which united them, there stood between them an evil spirit of conflict, which she had not the power to drive from his heart, and still less from her own. End of chapter 12